Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The former Labour Prime Minister in Britain, Harold Wilson, once said that a week was a long time in politics. And what a week it's been. In British politics, in US politics, in political developments across the globe. Let's start with Britain. Last week at this time, Britain was still moored, sunk even, in the fetid, stagnant waters of the Theresa May era. This week, there's a nuclear-powered propeller underneath the water. It is producing a phenomenal amount of foam and bubbles. Whether anything more substantive than that, we'll have to wait and see. Of course, that nuclear propeller is Boris Johnson, our new Prime Minister. Will we ever get used to saying those words? Will we have to get used to saying those words? For how long will he be in number 10 Downing Street? The coming to office of Boris Johnson has acted like a jolt of high-powered electricity through the political system. You're fooling yourself if you deny that. His It's Morning in Britain, Ronald Reagan sort of... Uh, rhetoric has begun to change the political weather. The Conservatives in one poll, admittedly a YouGov poll, which is usually wrong, I think they should change their name. The usually wrong YouGov, however, has Boris Johnson and the Conservatives a full 10 points ahead of Labour. And that 10 points has been taken directly from the Brexit party of Nigel Farage. A direct transfer, one down to 13, the other up to 31. Of course, the other polls also put the Conservatives ahead, though not by much and well within the margin of error. But those of you who don't want to see the Conservatives in power, those of you who want to see Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party in power, I should not disregard the change of atmosphere that very clearly has happened in the space of just 72 hours or so. Boris Johnson has a way with him. Boris Johnson can walk into a shopping mall and he can bring the place to a halt. Boris Johnson can stop the traffic. Boris Johnson is a larger-than-life figure. If you don't compute all of these things, then you're destined to be defeated by him. That's my warning to those of you who don't like him out there tonight. Underestimate him at your peril. And Labour is going to have to step up its game. It's going to have to compete 
with the vision thing with Boris Johnson, or else it will be drowned. Because, make no mistake, all of, all of the UK media that spent the last few weeks rubbishing Johnson has suddenly swung to his side. Because, of course, for them, a victory for Boris Johnson means a defeat for Jeremy Corbyn. It means a defeat for change, a defeat for a different kind of Britain. And they don't want that. It's really as simple as that. Their owners don't want it, and the hirelings, therefore, don't want it either. Even if they might once have done so, the facts are they do what they're told or what they expect their owners to want. And so far, they have swung dramatically behind Boris Johnson. Now, his cabinet has been picked. And I've got to say, outside of a chamber of horrors, it's difficult to imagine a collection of misfits quite like it. Let me start with the obvious, because I really can't believe this one. The former fireplace salesman who graduated 2-2 from Bradford University in sociology, which got him a job as a fireplace salesman, and then got him a job as a Tory MP, the chief whip, and then, all too briefly, the defence secretary. Yes, don't spell him your name, Pike. Yes, Private Pike, Gavin Williamson is now your education secretary. The fact that just a few weeks ago, he was sacked from the cabinet on the advice, one presumes, of the security services, having been caught red-handed as the source of a major leak from the National Security Council. I'm not making this up. On the subject of Huawei, he came out of the NSC meeting and allegedly picked up the phone and gave the whole story to the newspapers. And of course, the security services, when they got involved in that, quite quickly tumbled that it was him. And he was kicked out of the cabinet just a couple of months ago by the then Prime Minister, Theresa May. Well, he's back and he's in charge of your daughter and your son's education. There are other ghouls, of course. One of them's name is Priti Patel. She has quite a security background also. She was sacked by Theresa May from the cabinet for another breach of national security. A brazen, flagrant breach of protocol, of cabinet rules, and of any common sense. She took what is laughably known as a holiday in Netanyahu's Israel. But during that holiday, she had no fewer than 12 political meetings with Benjamin Netanyahu's functionaries and ministers. She even went on a field visit to visit a field hospital treating Al-Qaeda and ISIS terrorists on Israeli-occupied Golan Heights, now known, I think, as Trump Heights. When this news was broken, she was sacked in midair as she headed back to London. She's back too. As Home Secretary for foreign listeners, 
Interior Secretary. That means in charge of law and order. And one of our two national security agencies. Crime and punishment is her forte. She said on BBC television that she was in favour of bringing back the death penalty. How about that? We thought that argument had been settled in Britain, although it's just been reopened by Donald Trump on the federal level in the United States this week. We now have a person in charge of crime and punishment in Britain who wants to turn the clock back to the 1960s. Do a quick computation of how many innocent men would have been hanged in Britain from 1964 until now, and you'll get an idea of the scale of the madness of that. Jacob Rees-Mogg, he of the double-breasted pyjamas, is back at the heart of things as the leader of the House of Commons. His first act was to issue what he would call a pronunciamento, because he likes inserting Latin into his discourse. And in his pronuncio matter, he gave chapter and verse to all civil servants in Britain about the words and phrases that should not henceforth be used in communications from the government. Some of them actually I commend to you. Phrases like going forward, phrases like rolling out, all the garbage we imported from the United States misuse of the English language. But some of them are frankly absurd. Male MPs who are untitled, I'm not making this up for those of you listening across the world, he means that they're not called Lord this or so that. Male MPs are now to have the word Esquire appended at the end of their name. So, as George Galloway Esquire, I'm here to bring you the mother of all talk shows this evening. Of course, we'll be talking about Boris Johnson, his new cabinet. We'll be talking about the only job, as Michael Caine famously said, you only had one job. Well, Boris Johnson has only got one job, and that job is to deliver by Halloween Britain's exit from the European Union. He's talking tough, the bubbles and the foam look formidable, but can he do it? And what happens if he doesn't? Well, he has so formidably hung his hat on that task, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that he would have to leave office if he failed to achieve it by the 31st of October. But maybe he's got another fiendish plan. Because you see, the European Union, if it doesn't back down on some important parts of the withdrawal agreement, is going to force Boris Johnson and therefore Britain to leave on the 31st of October with no deal, a no deal Brexit. The problem for Boris Johnson is that there is not a majority in the House of Commons for such a Brexit. As a matter of fact, 
I can bring you the news that there's no majority in the House of Commons for this government at all. Why do I say so? Well, one of their MPs has just been charged by the prosecutorial authorities with sexual offences, two of them, against two separate women, and has just had, for the second time, the Conservative whip withdrawn. On Thursday, the Conservatives seem bound to lose a parliamentary by-election in Wales caused by the sitting Conservative Member of Parliament being found guilty in court of fiddling his expenses. And guess what? He is the Tory candidate again on Thursday. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, they have put up for re-election the man who caused the by-election by being found guilty of corrupt practice by a court just a couple of months ago. And here's the breaking news. Yet another Conservative MP is about to be charged with serial sexual offences going back years and involving literally hundreds of charges, hundreds of examples. He'll have to therefore lose the whip too. That's the Tories three votes down. Their majority was only two. Ergo, the smarter amongst you will have realised we now, or will on Thursday, have a minority government in Britain. So here's my point. A minority government, a House of Commons which has set its face against, at least in sufficient number, a no-deal Brexit can only add up to one thing, and that one thing is an early general election. So here's my prediction. Write it down. Don't forget you heard it here. Boris Johnson is going like a bull to charge at the EU, making demands on them that he knows they will not and cannot accept. The Parliament will turn down his approach, he'll dissolve the Parliament, call a general election, and it will be what I call a khaki election. Khaki, uniform, flag. You see, he'll say, I tried to implement the decision you, the people, made to leave the European Union, and Johnny Foreigner over there, and Johnny Foreigner's agents in the British Parliament will not allow me to do so. So it's over to you. So if I'm right, get ready for a general election in September. That's the only way that Boris Johnson can change the arithmetic. We'll be talking to the legendary, and I mean legendary, Abby Martin, formerly my colleague on RT from RT America, now working independently, making films. The Empire Files is the overarching uh, portfolio that she has produced. Her latest documentary on Gaza ought to be an Oscar-winning film. I'll be talking to Dr. Alan Sked, who actually established UKIP, remember them? 
UKIP, which became the Brexit Party, UKIP, which became the referendum, which became the Brexit decision in the first place. And of course, in the third hour, it's exclusively Ask Adam, the legend, the cleverest man in England, Adam Gary. It's going to be the mother of all talk shows, I can assure you. But before I take a break, I want to draw your attention to something that happened in London this week, which I'm required to do because, unbelievably, no one else is showing the footage. Here's the backdrop. There's a tiny little country, I call it a country, it's really a very large car park with a flag. It's called Bahrain. It's very strategically placed in the Persian Gulf. The British and the Americans, and that's hard because it's really, really small, have got naval bases in Bahrain. It has a king who is a Sunni Muslim though the vast majority of the population of Bahrain are Shia Muslims. The king is only in power because of the two naval bases and because of the money, the weapons, the power given to him by his neighbor, Saudi Arabia. I went there once. I talked to the prime minister of Bahrain. He's still the Prime Minister of Bahrain. He's been the Prime Minister of Bahrain since 1963, when the Beatles were number one in the hit parade. The Beatles are 40 years dead, and he is still the Prime Minister. It is a brutal two-bit tin pot tyranny which tortures and kills those raising the flag of democracy. That's all they want, the right to vote freely. One man, one woman, one vote. And when they turn out to vote for democracy, to shout for democracy, if they're not gunned down by the dictatorship's forces, they are taken into prison and tortured. And this week, two of them, one age 25 and one age 24 were summarily murdered. They call it executed in cold blood in Manama, in the tiny statelet of Bahrain. They've got an embassy in London. Outside it, decent people gathered to raise their voice against the murder of these youths whose crime was to fight for democracy. Here is what happened. They want to throw him from top. They want to, embassy wants to throw him. Look, 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 hey, look, look. They want to throw him. The British police had to bust in the door, demanding that the Bahraini officials halt the murder. That's what they said. Halt the murder. They meant what you just saw. The attempted murder of a democracy protester 
threatened with being thrown off the roof to smash like an egg in Belgrave Square in the heart of London. And as I tweeted this week, I don't know which is more depressing, that this happened, that the two young men were cold-bloodedly murdered, or the fact that nobody seems to give a toss about it, not even to report something that happened in central London. Well, I give a toss about it, and I figure that so do you. Buckle up. There's nearly three hours of this still to come. It's the mother of all talk shows. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Tune in every Monday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for our regular segment, Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers, where we take a look at the state of education across the country. What's happening in our schools, colleges, and universities, and what impact does it have on the world around us? Our resident expert is Bill Ayers, the legendary activist, educator, and author. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Monday and every Monday for Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers. On Sputnik with Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. Tune in. Well, maybe mention, maybe mention like central bankers and, and you know, markets are doubling down. Not you're saying everybody's doubling down. They're crazy. They are. Everyone's crazy. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at SputnikNews.com. This is Dominic Carter, a political reporter in New York for Verizon Files TV News. This is Dr. Bill Honigman, a progressive Democrat for America, PD, America.org. Hey, everybody, my name is Tim Black of the Tim Black Show. This is Tom Luongo of Gold Coast and Guns. Hello, this is Benny Johnson. Hi, this is Juanita Broderick, author of You'd Better Put Some Ice on That. This is Jamal Thomas from the Progressive Soapbox. Hey, this is Raheem from D.C. This is Rachel Blevins, a correspondent with RT America, and you're listening to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. When I'm waking up in the morning, I'm looking for what's on the queue for today. I tune to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. The wokest radio show for your wokest AM. These guys are the best in the business. 
and experts when it comes to policy. They're bringing you the top headlines with an angle that you won't see in the mainstream media. All Lines is the greatest show on the radio. I enjoy immensely talking with Lee and Garland. They always treat me uh, from either side with due respect, and it's a wonderful conversation. The best morning news show in America. Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan. Lee and Garland speak truth to power from the depths of the swamp itself, right here on Radio Sputnik. The mother of all talk shows. Join our faculty of legends, contributors, and callers. Everyone is welcome. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. You can call me, by the way, and I really do want you to. The number is 0207-798-2255. That's 0207-798-2255. Here's how it works. You call us, and we call you back at the appropriate point in the show. You can also Skype me, remember. You can leave Skype messages through the week, or you can Skype me now. And the Skype address is ggmotes. That's G-G-M-O-A-T-S. As... Last week, when double the number of people from the previous week watched the show on the Facebook page of RTUK News or on the YouTube channel, George Galloway Official. Now, we've got hellos already from Edinburgh, Ireland, Bulgaria, Sweden, Peterhead, that's in Scotland, by the way, Florida, Slovenia, Turkey, Canada, South Africa, Damascus in Syria, Dayton, Ohio, and in Shropshire. And Callum says, George, I'm currently lying in a hospital bed in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. Can you thank all the brilliant staff on Ward 205 for all the help they've given me? I'd really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate it too, Callum. Uh, another hello from South Dakota, USA. And someone else watching from Bulgaria, look forward to the show as always. Well, Essex fella tweets, Hi George Galloway, do you have right-wing views as well as left-wing, Ert? Well, my next guest is to the right of Genghis Khan. Or at least <laughs> you'd think so, because he's the man that set up UKIP. I've no idea if he's actually all that right-wing, but he set up a party that became very right-wing indeed. He is, of course... Dr. Alan Sked, a very well-respected academic and writer, uh, founder of UKIP. And who better to speak to about Brexit than Dr. Alan Sked? And Essex fellow will be particularly happy to see you. Alan, it's all about the Brexit, isn't it? If Boris Johnson fails to deliver by the 31st of October, he's a goner. I think that's right. I mean, uh, Brexiteers are very um, excited just now that we have a Brexit Prime Minister, a Brexit Cabinet, uh, a Brexit um, a team behind the Cabinet, and uh, all those involved in the Leave campaign now seem to be working in Downing Street. Yes. And, uh, you know, he says he's going hell for leather to get Brexit by 31st of October. If he doesn't, if he tries to compromise in some way, if he tries to reheat May's discredited deal, uh, if he asks for an extension, then he's out, and I think uh, the Brexit party will come up. 
they have plummeted in the YouGov poll, usually wrong poll, uh, but a real plummet, down to 13%. Well, it's a bit like UKIP after the referendum result. I mean, people think that they've done their job. I mean, if Boris can carry out the task of achieving Brexit, uh, then there isn't any need for a Brexit party. I might add there isn't any much need for a Lib Dem party either, who's well, raison d'etre. They, they, they only have one policy, and that's yes. to... Well, maybe they'll uh, reinvent themselves as the party to rejoin the European Union. Well, the lie all the, the Euro, time, so God the knows Euro, what they'll say. Euro and all. Yeah, I, I absolutely share that analysis. So the question is, can he do it? Well, the default position legally is that all he has to do is exist and breathe and keep his cabinet alive until the 31st of October, and then legally we exit the European Union. Uh, it's difficult to see how they can stop him. I mean, if they have a vote of confidence, uh, he may survive it. If he doesn't survive it, then uh, Labour uh, has said that he will, uh, it will agree to have a general election. Uh, and it could be that he uh, arranges a date of the general election after the 31st of October, uh, in which case we would leave during We would the actually have gone by the time of the election. We would have gone by I the personally the think that's result. the best possible outcome. I mean, very amusing. Uh, I mean, I mean that would solve a problem for me. I can't support Labour's policy of trying to stop Brexit, but if we've already Brexited, I could vote Labour. Well, that's your problem. It's not mine. I certainly <laughs> couldn't vote Labour. But in any I know case, that. But in any case, uh, that, that's a possibility. Um, I can't see how else they can do it. They would have to revoke Article 50. Uh, and they're the opposition. I can't see... I think only a government can revoke Article 50. Only a government can initiate the question. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But don't forget two things. Uh, you know that Randolph Churchill famously forgot Goshen. Don't forget Berkow. Uh, John Barkow is the Speaker of the House of Commons. He's a super activist against Brexit. He's a rogue speaker. He's a bit of a rogue speaker. He, together with the Labour uh, Remainites, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornberry, Tom Watson and so on, together with the sacked 17 ministers from Theresa May's government, uh, they might cook something up to throw a giant spanner in the works? Well, they might try, but it's difficult to see what they could do because they're, they're not the government and they would have to come into government to revoke Article 50. Um, one of the nice things about Jeremy Corbyn saying he would agree to have a general election is that presumably there wouldn't be an interim period of 14 days where he'd try and form a government himself. He would just agree to go straight to uh, an election. During that interim period, hypothetically, uh, if he were allowed to get into power and have a majority in the Commons, then he might be in a position to revoke Article 50. But if, as he says, he goes straight to a general election and agrees with Boris there ought to be one, then I think that takes that possibility away. Yeah, and then he doesn't have to show all of his cards. There's only one or two left, but uh, if I'm right... I infer that he doesn't actually want to stop Brexit. Uh, he just wants to look like he's trying to stop Brexit. He knows, as I know, that making Labour one of the three Remain parties in the state is not exactly the route to uh, power in the Midlands, in the North, in South Wales, all the places that voted for Brexit in the first place. But let's stick with the Tories for the minute. How much trouble 
do you think the likes of Philip Hammond and other uh, of the Remain fifth column can cause Boris Johnson from the back benches? Well, they'll cause quite a lot of trouble vocally. They'll make a lot of noise. They'll, project fear will be echoed in every speech they make. However, they might be uh, neutralised if a number of Labour MPs decide to back Boris over Brexit and not to vote uh, against the government in a no-confidence motion. I mean, I'm sure Kate Howey and Caroline Flynn uh, and some other Labour MPs might very well cancel them out. Let's talk about the European Union, which you fought against all this time. When did you set up UKIP? Well, I set up what was called the Anti-Federalist League in 1991, and it was renamed UKIP in 1993. I mean, that's a pretty historic thing that you did. If not for UKIP, we wouldn't have uh, had the referendum. We wouldn't have won the referendum if we hadn't had uh, the victory of uh, UKIP in the European Parliament elections before last, and so on. So you've, you, you have actually written a fair bit of British history. Yeah, the German, the German newspaper, uh, the Berliner Tagesspiegel, had a headline and called me Alan Scared, the man who invented Brexit. Yeah, well, and, you, you kind know, of did. I played my part. Before, uh, before Nigel Farage uh, oh, was yes. ever heard of. Yes, yes. Now, the European Union, they may be watching this show, listening to this show, but in any case, they already know uh, everything that we've just said. How much do you think they care if we leave without a deal. I can't un understand the equanimity with which the European Union is going quietly into what will be a good night for a very large number of European Union based industrial and other service providers. It's very bad news for business if Britain leaves without a deal. Well, it is, but uh, it depends on which they put first, what the first priority is. If the first priority is to defend the European Union against uh, further member states trying to leave, then they'll want to punish us, well, no matter what the cost. Uh, if they were rational and just wanted a pleasant relationship in the future with uh, a Britain which had got over Brexit and wanted to be friends with them, then they would have to make concessions. They should, they should just agree to a free trade treaty and uh, allow us to go our separate ways. But there are those, especially in the Commission, who are determined that we should not be an example to others, because otherwise it all might break up. I mean, Macron was asked the last time he was over here by Andrew Marr uh, what would happen if the French had a referendum. He said they'd vote to leave, but then he added, I'm not giving them one. Mm. Uh, and there may be other countries in the European Union of which that's also true. Um, so, you know, they, they are worried in case we are the thin end of the wedge. And you think they're more worried about that than the difficulty in selling Mercedes cars and French cheese and wine well, well, uh, so after a no-deal yeah, Brexit? Well, so far that's the impression they're giving. Uh, but the German uh, economy is going into recession. Is, Manufacturing that's, that was my is, next point. Yeah, short-term uh, short already in, a, in deep yeah, trouble. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, French... Italy's in... Uh, recession already. Yeah, yeah. Germany is almost certainly in it and officially about to be in it. Uh, France has absolutely negligible growth rates and hundreds of thousands of people on the street every Saturday wearing yellow vests. Yes. 
And uh, the BBC never tells us about any no, of these things. No, not, not a newspaper, not no, a frame, no, no, not nothing. The, the media, no. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it must be a close-run thing is what I'm saying. Uh, what is more important to them, punishing us or triggering recession, a further recession in their, in their own countries? But let's assume that they do. It's now the, uh, the 1st of November. We've left without a deal. What happens then? Well, I, I think we would wait to see whether they immediately put tariffs on our goods, in which case we'd probably respond by putting tariffs on theirs. And uh, going under WTO rules, then we would start uh, an independent uh, custom system of our own. Uh, we could get rid of a lot of tariffs that they force us to impose on uh, clothing and food and wine and cars coming from other parts of the world, even if that meant also reducing tariffs on their goods. I mean, there is a case for having simply no tariffs whatsoever, whatever the European Union does, because it makes things so much cheaper for us uh, in so many ways. And that, uh, you know, if the Europeans uh, are upset by this, then it really won't make any difference to us. Their tariffs will be offset by a, an immediate slide in the pound. So tariffs are on average 4%. Uh, people are saying the pound will go down by 10%. That simply means that our exports are 6% cheaper. So that, that's hardly a, you know, a huge worry. Uh, I think you know, what people are worried about are supply chains. I think the government is working very hard to make sure there's no trouble with these. This is Michael Gove's responsibility. This is Michael now. Gove's responsibility. And Gove, whatever you think of him, is actually quite efficient as a minister. So, I mean, I think there may be a few bumps for a week or two. But after that, I think things will settle down. And when people see that Project Fear has been an illusion, just as it was after the referendum, and you know, the world doesn't collapse, the economy doesn't collapse, then support for Boris and for Brexit will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, what about the Irish Sea, or as our new Foreign Secretary called it, the Red Sea? Uh, he confused the Red Sea uh, with the Irish Sea. What happens uh, with our relations with Ireland? What happens in the border areas? Well, I mean, the British government will do nothing to change anything. Uh, it might bring in a few inspectors away from the border. Uh, but the real problem would be for Ireland, because the European Commission would suddenly say to it, well, what are you doing to protect the single market? And, um, you know, what, the Irish simply at this stage don't seem to know. Uh, there's rumours that the European Union will put in billions into Ireland to try and offset the, the great losses it will have under a no-deal situation. Uh, but Varadkar, the T-shirt, the, 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 the Prime Minister of Ireland, one day says that there, there won't be a hard border, and then uh, the next day he says there'll have to be a hard border, depending whether he's speaking to us or whether he's speaking to the Irish. Um, he seems to, to say that with no deal, there must be a hard well, you see this, border. And then when he talks to yeah. the, the Irish, he says then that there won't be one. Quite. Uh, and this is a point that the British have failed to make throughout this uh, terrible agony of the last uh, couple of years agonizing about this if britain had said there are no circumstances in which we will build a hard border well we've said that yes but not clearly enough because the corollary also then needs to be posed mr vardakar are you going to build one 
Mr. Barnier, are you going to build a they've, wall? They've both said no. No one says they're going to build a hard border, then, but then so there why is, no is there going to border? be one? Yes, I know. It's, it's amazing. It is uh, extraordinary. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, I know him reasonably well. Uh, you'd have to say he's a, he, he's a presence. He has charisma not to be uh, underestimated as a political asset, at I, least, I've met him a few least times, in yeah. the short term. Uh, but he's throwing money around like confetti, or at least rhetorical money. I mean, he's going around the country promising billions. Uh, thought there was no magic money tree. You're an economist. Well, uh, I'm a historian, actually. <laughs> I was at the London School of Economics, but they do employ non-economists. Um, Philip Hammond said he'd got a little check, war chest of 26 billion in the case of no deal. So he's got 26 billion. And then uh, that's only based on a, a, a way of bringing the, the deficit down. Now, uh, we could easily put the deficit up, especially over a course of, sort of three or six months. And, um, you know, interest rates now are so low that if we wanted to borrow for infrastructure at something like 0.5% over the next 50 years, I mean, there's no better time to do it. Let's take a break, because I want to talk to you after that about what Britain could look like after Brexit. Dr. Alan, uh, Professor Alan, I was asking you before the break about how we get to the 1st of November. I'm going to take it as a given uh, that we do leave on the... 31st on Halloween, otherwise all the masked men will be out to get uh, Boris Johnson if he fails. Um, I have myself, as you know, I was a strong supporter of Brexit. I was a campaigner for it. Uh, I have very strong views on the kind of Britain I want to see. There'll be different uh, views to yours, I have, uh, I have no doubt. But one of the reasons why I fought for Brexit was so that we could have an independent foreign policy, an independent industrial policy, neither of which we can have within the EU. That's obvious. I tire of left-wing people, or people who think they're left-wing, uh, imagining that Britain was some kind of uncivilized tribe before 1973, living in the forest and painting our faces blue. I just noticed today uh, that this is the anniversary of Harold Wilson's introduction of uh, equality for gay people uh, in 1968, five full years before uh, we joined the European Union. Barbara Castle introduced equal pay for women long before we joined the European Union. Uh, the Clean Air Act and so on. We had many, many things that they didn't have in the European Union. The European Union didn't civilize us. At the same time, we are required to follow EU foreign policy, sanction this country, sanction that country at their whim. And equally, and this comes more from liberal and greeny type uh, people, when I say that Britain was the workshop of the world, I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, well, so. And we built ships of steel which sailed the seven seas with, laden with our manufacturers. And I say it was a deliberate course set by the EU that whilst Germany would continue to be 
an industrial superpower, we would become something else, and something else is what we became. Well, we got no benefits from being members of the EU, that's certainly true, and I agree with you. We uh, had all our own rights and all our own advantages before we actually went in. The thing that I get most annoyed about is actually Scottish nationalists, because we're both Scots who tell mm. me that they want to be an independent Scotland in a united Europe, and I keep saying, you must be insane yeah. if you believe you could an be independent. An oxymoron. It's an oxymoron, <laughs> yes. And um, the, the, the real reason why I set up UKIP, uh, or the Anti-Federalist League at first, was to get our national sovereignty back, the ability to make our own laws, uh, direct our own policies, uh, and create our own destiny in the world. And that was the great uh, achievement of Brexit, that in future, once it's accomplished, we will have a government which will be directly and solely accountable to the British electorate, and that government will have the freedom to pursue its own policies and every sphere of activity. Now, uh, what these policies will be, well, will depend on whether they're Labour governments or Tory governments, but they'll be our policies, and we don't like them, we don't like the government, we can boot them out. Uh, we had European elections, but it makes no difference at all to who runs the European Union, it's not a democracy. But we want a democratic, self-governing Britain once again, and the shape of that Britain, what the determines to do in the world will be up to us, the British people and the people we elect. So I look forward to a fair, uh, socially fair, economically prosperous uh, Britain which will make its own way in the world and which will pursue its own best interests in terms of foreign and defence policy. Quite so. I, I mean, people say, you know, get Brexit, get chlorinated chicken from the US, get Brexit, uh, get a foreign policy that is uh, utterly beholden to Donald Trump, who, of course, may, may very well be out of office before uh, we leave finally the <laughs> well, I hope, Euro no, European not that long. Union. <laughs> mm. uh, the the uh, reality is, as you just said, we'll get what we vote for. So I, I will fight, for example, if Nissan or Honda, Honda want to leave uh, Swindon, Nissan, uh, want to leave uh, the northeast of England. Well, we help them buy all that plant and equipment, uh, and we have the people that make the cars anyway. So if the Japanese want to leave over Brexit, we'll build our own cars in that plant. Yeah, uh, we, we could give every Nissan worker a thousand pound each or a million pound each, and we still have 36 million pounds <laughs> left out of the 39 million that the, May was going to give the EU that we could still spend on building cars. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. We could say that, the, that we're no longer paying the 39 billion because you wouldn't give us a, a deal, and here are the kind of things we're going to do with it. And one of them is to establish our own car industry. Everyone has a car. Uh, governments buy cars, the state buys cars, local councils buy cars, and we're going to buy them from our own workers, made by our own fair hands. For me, we'll not actually be an independent country until we can, we don't necessarily have to, but can grow all we need and can make all that we need. That's what independence means to me, so that no one can hold us to ransom and say, we're not going to give you a deal, uh, we're not going to send you our cheese. 
Well, be a tea shortage. If we produced everything we, may, we, we need and grew everything we need, then of course we'd have no trade whatsoever with anybody in the world. That's what I say. We don't have to do it. Well, but no, we have I mean, to be I, 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 of doing I think it. in a free trade world, have to have world, the right you, to do you, it. You get cheaper food from people who could produce it more cheaply, and you sell which we're forbidden to do now by which, European Union yeah. law. So we have to we, come we, we have to put tariffs on. Yeah, uh, cheap cheaper products yeah. coming from poor countries yeah. in order to stay in a club of rich comparatively countries. rich yeah. countries. What's what's the, Labour the, about that? What's I socialist know, about I that? Know. I, I cannot defend the Labour Party. I never have and I still find it impossible. I mean, you might one day in the future still be able to, but the Labour Party still survives, I don't know. What do you think this has all done uh, to Labour? Well, it's confused the way that people look at Labour. I mean, at the, during the referendum, most uh, 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 Labour MPs were uh, for Remain, uh, but a large part of the Labour electorate voted to leave. And Some four millions minimum. Yeah, and it seems as if the, I don't know, chattering classes in um, Hampstead and Islington uh, have decided they don't really care about them. They're stupid, they're ignorant, racist, uh, racist, uh, lazy. Um, their views can be discarded, which is amazing, given how the Labour Party developed and how it grew up. The natural heartlands of the Labour Party, I think, will desert it at the next election. Farage is uh, biting at the bit to, uh, to get up there and to steal all these Labour seats. Uh, Corbyn doesn't seem to care, MacDonald doesn't seem to care, Thornby doesn't seem to care. All they seem to think about is the world inside the, uh, the beltway. I mean, the, the, so Kate Hoy wrote about that today in the Sunday newspapers. That's a Labour MP who's about to uh, leave just ahead, yeah, I think, I know, of being I know, kicked out. Yes, I know. Uh, She's she been wrote, a wonderful she wrote uh, fight. A, a very Brexit. powerful piece mm. that, uh, that Labour seemed determined to be a party in the bubble. Yeah, but um, they're going to split the Remain vote with the Lib Dems, the Greens, yes. uh, the Nationalists. Um, they'll lose any sense of identity. Mm. Because, I mean, uh, given that Brexit is the big issue, it's no longer nationalisation or socialism, it's Brexit. Labour, you know, is just one of three parties that you might vote for. And if you don't like Corbyn, well, you've got the Lib Dems of the Greens. Well, this is a, a point that should be screamingly obvious. Uh, if Labour had a, a leader that wasn't called Jeremy Corbyn, with his left-wing socialist policies, some that might vote Liberal, might vote Green, may vote for that kind of Labour Party. But if it's a Labour Party led by Jeremy Corbyn, fighting for a decently radical left-wing programme, you're not going to get Remainer Tories switching to Jeremy Corbyn, or Remainer Liberals, or Remainer Greens. Well, he's beginning to look like the Leonid Brezhnev of the British socialism. I mean, just an old man. I tell you, he could outrun you and me. <laughs> he could outcycle you and me. Anybody could outrun me. I've got arthritis. But, the, um, uh, but he is, in terms of you know, his policies and his uh, persona, beginning to look like someone from a past era. And he is someone from the past era. I mean, mentally, he lives in 1917. <laughs> but, I mean, he had a kind of charisma to begin with. You He's saw it. I well, promise I, you, I don't, I he don't. had several outings in the last uh, two weeks. Uh, big audiences, outdoor rallies. He's still got it. He's not at all a relic. 
and you and I, as men of a certain age, should be careful of the idea uh, that, uh, <laughs> well, that men, when they reach a certain age, well, are no, no it's more... Not, it's not his age, it's his, it's, it's his ideology, which I think is outdated. Well, I promise you, uh, Corbyn's real Labour policies, we'll park Brexit for a minute, real Labour policies have uh, a market. But it's not a market that is going to be accessed by uh, Liberals, Greens and Remain or Tories. So in purely cephalogical terms, the Keir Starmer, John MacDonald, Tom Watson, Emily Thornberry stance of becoming a Remain party is just bonkers. Well, it's I'm handing the keys to four to five million Labour votes to Nigel Farage. Mm. Well, I don't know how they can't see this, but apparently they, they can't or they, they don't care or there is, there's some blind spot. That, that it must be that they're so committed Europeanists that uh, nothing, uh, nothing can undermine their face in the European Union and the price to stay in the European Union that they're willing to pay, you know, is beyond measure and that they're willing to surrender the Labour heartlands in order to stay in the EU, which is a failing, uh, decrepit, uh, wannabe superpower, which may not exist in four or five years. Well, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope everyone follows you uh, on Twitter at ProfSked. And you can call me on 0207-798-2255. You call us, we call you back. Establish a clear line and it won't therefore cost you more than a penny or two. You can Skype me at GG Motes. You can tweet me on the new Twitter handle, GG Motes. In the second hour, I'm going to be talking to the legendary American broadcaster, journalist and filmmaker, Abby Martin. I worked with her for a time. I've been on her shows uh, a few times, but she's now, as it were, gone independent and is making films about empire, uh, which are good enough to shake those empires. The Empire Files, about the role of the British Empire, the United States Empire, and her latest film is about Gaza, and I'll be talking to her on the Skype, so you'll see her and hear her uh, in the next hour. And in the third hour, of course, it's the cleverest man in England. I say England to distinguish Professor Allen and myself uh, from him. He's not necessarily cleverer than the professor or indeed Yourself. me. But without doubt, he's the cleverest man in England. And to prove it, I hashtag ask Adam. You can literally ask Adam anything from Beethoven to the Beatles, from the public sector borrowing requirement in Peru, to the economic policies of the Chinese People's Republic, there's nothing that he doesn't know. So stay tuned. This is the mother of all talk shows. Now, of course, we pay close attention to what happens on the other side of the Atlantic in the United States of America, President Trump and who knows who will be his democratic challenger? Who knows if his presidency will end next year or continue for another four? One thing, though, we do know, and it is that the supporters of Israel in the United States, not least, indeed, probably foremost, 
the evangelical Christian supporters of Israel are still holding the whip hand over Congress. We had a situation in the last week where a foreign parliament, the US Congress, passed a law to make it illegal for citizens of the United States to call for or organize the boycott of Israeli products, the divestment by American firms from Israeli firms and the economy there, and even to call for economic sanctions. In my long experience, it is absolutely unprecedented that one country would legally bind its own citizens against criticism and peaceful boycotts of the products and services of a second country. I can think of no other example, uh, but the resolution passed overwhelmingly with only a dozen or so Democrats voting against it. As far as I know, every single Republican voted for it. And actually, in the last couple of weeks, President Trump, who had no track record as any great supporter of Israel before, and most supporters of Israel uh, have not traditionally voted for the Republican Party, he has begun to morph, imagine himself to have morphed into the president of both the USA and Israel. He talks about Israel as if it were under his purview. He talks about how he gave the Golan Heights to Mr. Netanyahu, how he gave the embassy to Mr. Netanyahu by moving it to uh, Jerusalem. He talks about our country when he's actually talking about Israel. It is a remarkable state of affairs. And one of the Democratic hopefuls uh, came a cropper, I think, by voting for this draconian, rather absurd law. I refer to Tulsi Gabbard, who has been much talked about on the mother of all talk shows uh, since we began. She supported the bill, now an act, which makes it illegal for her own constituents to decide not to buy Israeli products. You couldn't really make that up. Now, as I said earlier, Abby Martin is an absolute standout in the US media and has been now for many years. Formerly a political activist in, in uh, California, in the Bay Area. I'm headed for California, by the way, in November, if Donald Trump lets me in. Um, coming to uh, speak at an event and be given a, a, an award. The uh, Abby Martin moved to RT in America and is now working independently. And I'm going to be talking to her right after this short break. Well, she's US broadcasting and journalistic royalty, or at least she would be if it really was a republic. She, Abby Martin, is a complete and absolute star. And she joins me now from the United States. Abby, I can't tell you how happy I am to see you. 
I'm so happy to be on, George. Thank you so much. It's a great honor. You have done such great work since we last uh, spoke through the Empire Files. Uh, but your, uh, your masterpiece, at least for now, you're still very young, but your masterpiece <laughs> is the movie that you've just made about Gaza. We'll talk about Gaza, but tell me about the film first. Right, George. Well, as you know, and as you've been covering for your whole life, um, you know, Gaza, of course, is the, you know, one of the largest manufactured humanitarian crises in the world where Israel is purposefully withholding water for 2.2 million people alongside, you know, essential uh, things that, that humans need to survive. Um, so we decided to, you know, of course, the Great March of Return had sparked off over a year ago where 200, over 200 Palestinians have been mowed down by Israeli snipers for simply protesting peacefully with bared chests facing a fortified military and, you know, um, countless snipers. So this includes children, disabled press, medics, um, protected categories under the Geneva Conventions. You know, of course, if this were a battle between armies, it would still be highly illegal war crimes. So, of course, we wanted to cover this because the Palestinians that I talked to in Gaza were, were really stunned at the lack of media coverage and just the kind of same cynicism with the corporate media in terms of what's going on, both sides in it. Um, you know, the passive voice talking about Palestinians died instead of they were murdered. So we worked with a, with a group of Palestinian journalists in Gaza who got the most incredible footage for us, George, uh, just the most cinematic, incredible stuff that they risked their lives every Friday to get. And so we knew that we had to do an entire, you know, feature length film, not just an Empire Files episode, because the footage was so incredible. And just to do the story proper justice, because, of course, the lack of coverage this issue is just atrocious. Well, uh, we have, uh, of course, many of the same problems as you uh, here. Uh, and as you say, I've, I've been involved in Gaza for a long time. I have not been able to make a feature length film about it. And I take my hat off to you for having been able to do it. But it must have been very difficult. I mean, the reason I haven't done it is you couldn't raise the money for it here. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I can tell you, I once went to the United Arab Emirates, supposedly an Arab country, and literally went around with my hat in hand uh, to the, a selection of the sons of uh, the late King Sheikh Zayed, asking them to give me the money to make a film about Gaza, and I even failed there. Uh, so how did you manage to get the support required to make this film and how will you handle the inevitable difficulties that you will have in getting onto screens in front of audiences? My God, George, well, I think you're speaking to the crux of why media you know, is in such an abysmal state in yeah. both the United States, of course, uh, and all Western world, you know, Western media is just atrocious. Yeah. But I mean, we, we tried to get into Gaza when we were in the West Bank. Of course, the West Bank is, you know, under martial law, pretty horrific what's going on there. But we were actually blocked from getting into Gaza. I was told that I was a propagandist, not a journalist. I'm sure the Israeli military would deem you as the same kind of uh, descriptor. So, you know, it's shocking that we were, we were prevented from getting into Gaza. And also I was deemed an Iranian agent, you know, here I was thinking that I was a Russian, Russian agent and Venezuelan agent. But speaking to your, your main point is that, you know, we had to shut down Empire Files completely about a year ago and actually launch an entire 
grassroots fundraiser because of Trump's sanctions on, on Latin America, um, Venezuela in particular. So we were hosting our show on Telesor, which is a conglomerate of Latin American states. As we know, as I'm speaking to you, you know, with Sputnik Radio, we have to kind of go to other mediums um, to try to get support for these views, uh, to challenge the, these systems. Um, so we had to launch it all grassroots, George. We, we did all donor-based. It is 100% donor-based grassroots donations that have funded this movie. Um, and we spent pretty much every penny um, with, the, with the Gaza photographers and just with the manpower to, to make this film. Now, the other step of the way is, you know, how do we get it seen? How do we get it distributed? I mean, this subject matter, it's a third rail subject. No one wants to touch it. And even though there's been countless movies about Gaza, um, it's always painted as both sides, right? I mean, you can you can show the misery in Gaza, and you can you can show the horrors that are going on, but you always you know you don't take away any agency, and you don't actually leave watching these movies inspired about you can change the situation. And instead, you're told this has been going on for hundreds of years. It's the most complicated conflict in the world, <laughs> you know, as we know. It's actually one of the most simple. <laughs> Quite so. Uh, I mean, if uh, if someone had wanted to make a film about apartheid South Africa. Uh, for a time, there would have been resistance, but nothing like the same resistance. In fact, it would have become cool and trendy. Uh, you'd have had stars uh, being arrested outside uh, the South African embassy and so on. Indeed, that's what we did have towards the end. You'd have had Paul Simon going to uh, make, uh, make an, album, an album, Diamonds on the Soles of My Shoes, Graceland and all that. But why is it that we can't get the same kind of support for the people in Gaza who are by any measure, and uh, I take the measure of the grandson of Nelson Mandela, who said in London just a few weeks ago that not only is the state of Israel an apartheid state, it is a worse form of apartheid than existed in South Africa. Why is it that so many liberals, so many progressives are able to turn their faces away from the suffering in Gaza, do you think? I mean, from birth in this country, we are taught that Israel is our uh, closest ally, the greatest democracy in the Middle East, George. I mean, I didn't even know what Palestine was until I was a freshman in college. Um, you hear these kind of, you know, you just you just peddle propaganda incessantly um, from the day you're born until, you know, and, and if people don't get a proper political education. And, and actually understand how the media is manufactured and proposing one specific narrative to indoctrinate the masses, you're not going to understand what's going on. Um, but, but then again, it's almost like, you know, with social media and, and they don't have a lockdown of the narrative anymore, there's really no excuse because, you know, Netanyahu used to put out cartoons and these infographics showing, you know, the, um, people covering, you know, rocket launchers in a, in a home and all this stuff. I mean, now you just see through social media the atrocities firsthand. So there really is no excuse for Americans to not kind of, uh, you know, become educated and actually understand what's going on. In terms of the political establishment, good God. Um, you know, that, that question is still the greatest question that I have, George. What is happening? What will it take for these so-called, and even so-called progressive members of Congress to step up and actually stand on the right side of history? It's not hard. Einstein said it during the foundation of Israel. He said, I worry about, you know, what what this is happening and, and also the conflation of Judaism with political Zionism. 
that's not going to be good. I mean, he saw it back then. I mean, you had Stephen Hawking's uh, calling for an academic boycott of Israel before he passed away. So it's not hard to wrap your mind around, and it's not hard to propose to do the right thing. Um, but but again, I mean, APAC has really bought and sold uh, our elected representatives. And it's very, very shameful that we have 26 states now in this country that have already preemptively passed anti-BDS legislation, George, as you know, I mean, that, that law in how Texas. Does that, how how does that even work, Abby? I mean, how can I force you to buy Israeli oranges? Uh, or rather <laughs> to, how can I stop you from standing outside your local supermarket and telling other shoppers, you know, you don't want to buy those oranges. There's blood on those oranges. How does that even work? Well, it's very, very tricky. I mean, they've put it into, you know, hurricane relief grants, let's say independent contractors in the state of Texas. Um, I saw a speech pathologist on Democracy Now! talking about how she she was an independent contractor and she had to sign a contract that said she promises to not boycott Israel to do her job. Now ask yourself, why is it that independent contractors doing hurricane relief rebuilding and speech pathologists are having to promise that they will not boycott Israel in their lifetime in order to receive money? It, it is getting very, very topsy-turvy, George. I don't un actually understand how that would work. I think it's just signing away, you know, signing your soul away on a piece of paper. A yeah, lot of this yeah. is kind of fine print. Well, some, um, of the, and, and, yeah. some of the Congress people did so, didn't they? Uh, yes, uh, they did. In fact, all but about 12 or 14 voted for this nonsense, this uh, uh, inapplicable nonsense. It can't possibly be applied uh, for the reasons I just inferred and you confirmed that nobody knows how, other than holding people to ransom, make them sign a, a form, sign their soul away. Um, even Tulsi Gabbard, who's been making such really good statements uh, about Venezuela, about uh, the proposed war on Iran, many other foreign policy things. Uh, she's been really very good. Even she was in the lobby uh, for this anti-BDS bill. Right, and let's get this out of the way. It is an APAC resolution. Um, although it's non-binding, it is. It has tremendous implications. It also sets a very dangerous precedent to, you know, have a full frontal assault and pass more harsh measures in the future. Again, 26 yeah. states, 27 states rather, have already passed anti-BDS legislation. So this is just a stepping stone, George. And let's call them out. I mean, Tulsi Gabbard, Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley is is you know depicted as one of the most progressive Congress members. Ro Khanna. This is a person who was, you know, co-sponsoring the um, trying to get the Yemen war coming to an end. So what is this mealy mouth, both sides, you know, talking out both sides of their mouths? It's pretty, pretty astounding. Tulsi Gabbard, though, when you look at her record, um, she almost is trying to play both sides here because, you know, she spoke at the Christians United for Israel conference in 2015. She got an award uh, by Rabbi Shmuley in 2016 at the kind of who's who's of Israel Defenders Gala. Um, alongside Cory Booker and, you know, Netanyahu was there. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, even though she was on record saying a couple months ago she would staunchly defend and oppose any anti-BDS legislation, I don't understand what's going on here. You really have nothing to lose, especially if you're branding yourself as the anti-war candidate. So I don't see, you know, I see anti-war as kind of hand-in-hand hand with anti-occupation.
you know, and, and let's just call out all the progressive contenders for the 2020 election, George, because I went through all of them and they all have abysmal records. Um, all of them kind of pontificate about how they need a two-state solution, right? But what does that really mean? When you look at all of their records, they're all complete Israel hawks cowering in the face of the APAC lobby. Um, and the only person, and, and, and mind you, Bernie Sanders was actually very bad on this in 2014 during the massacre that took the lives of 2,200 Palestinians, including 500 children. But now, today, Bernie Sanders is the only one who actually articulates what the two-state solution would actually look like to him. He's, he's call, actually calling to withdraw settlements to the 1967 borders. Now, George, in the new Hamas charter, that's actually what Hamas calls for. Um, they've actually, you know, accepted the state of Israel um, and they've rejected anti-Semitism and the, the rejection of the conflation with political Zionism. So the peace can be done tomorrow, but it's this complete obfuscation and distortion of what is really happening. Netanyahu and all the ruling coalition parties in Israel have openly declared that they are going to pledge to annex the rest of the, of the West yeah. Bank yeah. and they don't want a state. So what is going on here? I think, no. I think President uh, Sanders, uh, and please God, uh, I'm able to uh, live to see that, uh, President Sanders has uh, said that if president, he would make conditional uh, the aid that the U.S. gives to Israel on precisely the political solution you describe and an end to the incessant, real murder, mass murder uh, that goes on in the occupied Palestinian West Bank in annexed Jerusalem and in besieged Gaza. He's the only one that's been clear about that, in my view. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, make no mistake about it. These people, um, you know, progressive except for Palestine is not progressive at all, George. And as we know, as, as people who've been on the front lines of the anti-war movement in this country and, and around the world for the last decade, I mean, when the Iraq war was, was sparking off, the anti-war resistance would not include pro-Palestinian rights. They would not include a free Palestine because it was too controversial at the time. Fast forward 15 years, you're not progressive if you don't support a free Palestine clearly and loudly. So polls are actually reflecting a significant drop in support from Democratic voters on this issue and Republican voters. Because again, the Great March of Return uh, makes, you know, there's, there's no distortion whatsoever when you're looking at the footage of children being mowed down in broad daylight by Israeli snipers for simply protesting. We all should have the right to freely protest. We all should have the right to, to live freely. That's the most basic right as a human being. Um, so, yeah, there's no excuses anymore. And it's time to start holding people accountable for their actions, George. And that means people who are voting with APAC resolutions that Netanyahu is cheering on. Well, uh, amen to that. Uh, tell us when the film will be available, please, Abby, how people can see it and how people can generally support your work. Right, so the film, we actually added a couple sections after the big premiere in LA, so we're excited about that to kind of leave, you know, the, the, really leave no questions about, about Hamas, about the peaceful nature of this march really having nothing to do with Hamas, because of course that's what the corporate media will say, uh, you know, so they're blue in the face, is mm. Hamas, 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 Hamas is throwing people in the way of the bullets, George. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just unbelievable. So this film, what we're really hoping to do with this film is to unequivocally 
point on broad daylight systematic war crimes, systematic targeted executions and assassinations of those protected categories in the Geneva Conventions, George. And we actually highlight um, how incredible Gazan women have been on the front lines of the struggle, um, organizing, um, you know, basically manu doing, doing uh, the, the hard, solid work on the ground. So we are putting that film up at the end of the month, early August at the latest. It's going to be GazaFrightsForFreedom.com. And people can support us on Patreon and other means to uh, donate to us because, again, we are going forward just solely on donations here because we know how taboo this issue is. And it no, really it, On the Patreon, is that, is that in the name of the film or is that the Empire Files Patreon? Patreon.com slash Empire Files. I, I, I will do that myself uh, tonight when I get home, and I'm encouraging everyone else to do it because there's nobody more deserving of financial support. Looking at the crimes of empire, looking at the fight against empire, shirking from none of those fights uh, than you and your, uh, your outfit. Uh, Abby, I've got a Skype message uh, for you. Let's take a look at it together. Let's do it. Hey George, Jesse, Dayton, Ohio again. Uh, just wanted to know if there was any way uh, to, to help Abby, to donate to Abby, uh, Patreon, anything like that. And uh, just gonna see if you'd highlight it on, this, on the show. Thank you, love you guys. Thank you, my friend. Uh, well, there you are, I preempted him uh, in so a much. way. <laughs> uh, I, I should have timed that better. Uh, but uh, Patreon slash Empire Files or The Empire Files? Abby? Um, Empire Files, just Empire Files. Files, just Empire. Empire. Not The Empire Files, Files just because, Empire Because there's more than one Empire, so of course. Right. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, finally, uh, finally, before I let you go, and I'm grateful for your time, uh, I just, uh, this really irks me. You're in, uh, often in, California. I'm myself going to California in November. I know that there are a lot of people in Hollywood and uh, in the entertainment industry, in the music industry, who would regard themselves as liberals and progressives. Some of them even more left than that. Some of them would regard themselves as socialists. I'm just wondering how they justify uh, their complete disinterest in the suffering of millions of people for which they, as American citizens, are directly responsible. You see, uh, sometimes uh, our enemies here in Britain, they say to me, why are you endlessly talking about Palestine? There are many other crimes in the world. Uh, and I always make the point that one of the reasons why is that my country created it. So if not me, who? <laughs> now, right. in the United States, without you, without your tax dollars, without your military, political, propaganda, and financial material, none of this suffering of the Palestinian people would be uh, possible. So, you know, you get up close and personal uh, with such people from time to time. Is it, do you think, they imagine Palestinians are children of a, a lesser God? Is it, is it something they feel guilty about? Or are they genuinely, absolutely, willfully blind about it? 
It's a really good question, George. I think that, you know, we're talking about um, a country steeped in historical ignorance and also I call us empire babies. I mean, these people really do believe in American exceptionalism. Uh, they believe that we're the greatest country in the world. And I think they have complete contempt um, for the notion of internationalism and solidarity with people who are oppressed, especially living under the boot of U.S. empire. Yeah, I get asked that question many times as well, and I always answer the same way. Um, I personally am an American citizen. I can only do what I can do. Um, I can fight and lobby my own government as an American citizen to stop um, providing you know, impunity for this colonial, settler colonial state that is committing ongoing um, ethnic cleansing on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, when we're sponsoring apartheid Israel with $10 million of American tax dollars every day, damn straight, I'm going to talk about this till the day I die. Um, until Palestine is free, George, because people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, uh, these, you know, these victors of the debate, these people of color who, who want to tout progressive values, they are disgusting when it comes to Israel. So no, you're not progressive if you want to pretend to care about immigrants, but you think Palestinian children are vermin. I'm sorry, it's time to start calling out reality for what it is. And You're I'm not right, going yeah. to make they're, it. They're forever crying on TV, Maddo yeah. and, uh, and all, crying on TV about immigrant children being held in camps uh, just across <laughs> your border. But the Palestinian children in camps are being literally murdered by your tax dollars. Literally murdered, George. And that's what this movie, we're, we're hoping to do with this movie, is push the needle for accountability because the U.S. will, will continue to veto any sort of resolution against Israel. They will continue to provide impunity um, for this apartheid state until we fight, until we mobilize the masses into a huge anti-war movement that includes a free Palestine to pressure our government to end this, George, um, because they're using butterfly bullets, they're using exploding bullets, they're using um, gas that is making people, you know, causing seizures and to suffocate and die. Um, that's just two of the crimes that are ongoing at this great march. And as you know, it's an ongoing massacre, one of the most egregious massacres of unarmed protesters in modern history. Yeah. And if you're not gonna stand up now, then what will you stand for? Exactly. You've got a lot of fans. Uh, here's another Skype uh, message. Let's see uh, if we can get that one up. Ah, oh, it's, a, it's a video how to Skype. My apologies. <laughs> Abby, you already know how to Skype, and we've had a half hour of great Skype. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. God bless you. Uh, my old friend Marie McFarlane, God bless you, Marie. You've uh, been uh, presented earlier today with the Order of the Red Banner. Uh, Marie says, just heard your brilliant monologue and what a shocker. Three Tory MPs out and you predict a general election in September. Will the Brexit party sweep the board? 17.4 million plus voters are not going to vote for a Remain party. Well, uh, to some extent, we've, uh, we've dealt with that, touched on that. But when Adam comes in, he'll have additional uh, on that. Thanks, Marie. Nigel Airy says, rousing introduction as usual, George, and also educational too. I did not know at all about the events that transpired in London, re Bahrain, that you detailed. Uh, don't beat yourself up for that, Nigel. Nobody in Britain knows about it because... Virtually nobody has reported it. YouTube comments. Well, I'll, I'll probably save them uh, for the lovely Bess because I'm, uh, I'm very much hoping uh, she'll be in shortly. I've got a caller on the line. It's Jared. 
in Pennsylvania. Let's hear from him. Jared, welcome. Oh, you're doing the Lord's work here, George. Uh, Thank this you. is a great this is a great show today with uh, Abby and the uh, founder of the Brexit movement yeah. and just uh, all these great voices uh, today. Um, I want to get a little bit into a topic that maybe you haven't touched about, but it, it, it also focuses on the Israel question. Yeah. Um, uh, the HR uh, 3877, uh, the U.S. Congress just passed a uh, so-called bipartisan budget act, which includes 1.48 trillion in Pentagon spending wow. for the Trump war machine, wow. and this is obscene. And, and and you know the worst part is that 219 Democrats voted for this bill, and this is the so-called opposition party, <laughs> and only 16 voted against. So somebody like wow. Ilan Omar and Ayanna Presley, and that's and the rest are just blue dogs or new Democrats, and it's it's just crazy. Well, look, I couldn't uh, I couldn't put that any more powerfully than you just have, and there's no need for me to uh, recapitulate uh, all of it. But I just make this point to you, Jared, that this defense budget could utterly transform the landscape of the United States of America. It could give everybody free health care. It could put everybody that's out of work back to work. It could rebuild every bridge. It could repave every road. It could even give you clean water in Flint, Michigan. It could restart the factories that they closed. It could actually make America uh, from sea to sea a city, a glittering city on a hill. It's astounding that the opposition party goes along with this grotesque waste. In fact, by the way, much of it isn't even audited. Hundreds of millions of it gets stolen. Every year disappears without trace. There's billions of dollars missing in the Defense Department of the United States unaccounted for. You think about it. Let's just take five years of $1.4 trillion of expenditure. Think of what America could be like. You could be the new Jerusalem, man. I know, it's completely crazy. We have 21 trillion from 1998 to 2015 of unaccounted uh, money in the Pentagon. It is all a giant slush fund, and it's all going to places like Israel. It's going to these wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in uh, Libya, Syria, and it's not going uh, to the American uh, taxpayers, that's for sure. I mean, this bill only gives $1.30 trillion to domestic spending for the rest of the government. So that means that $178.6 billion more is going to the Pentagon than domestic spending for the rest of the government. Well, uh, that, think that, about that, that for a second. Oh, I, I'm going to think about it for a lot more than a second. It actually takes your breath away, Jared. Thank you for that call from Pennsylvania. Let's hear from Tony in Liverpool. Go ahead, Tony. Good evening, George. It's a privilege to speak to you, my friend. Thank you, sir. It's been a good show tonight. Glad to hear from you. Go on. 
Well, I just wanted to uh, touch on your conversation with Professor Alan Skid, uh, yeah. a, a, a remarkable man, very nice guy. He's a very, very he, clever and gentle man, yeah. He is indeed. Well, I just wanted to touch on, on Germany in particular. They've, they've currently cut their growth forecast, the GDP growth forecast, to 0.2% for this year. Yeah, and it, that, it, that's it, an overstatement, by the way, Tony. Yeah. Yeah, Italy is in recession for the third time in a decade, and France has got chaos on its street on a, on a, a weekly basis. But is it getting on for 40 weeks now, George? It's, it's I think this is week 37, but it might be 38, yeah. Oh, OK, so, and yet we are now on bended knee begging the European Union to take yeah, our 39 yeah, billion. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I say to hell with them. To hell with them. If they, if they won't make a decent agreement with us, to hell with them. We'll live without an agreement. We've lived through worse than that, Tony. George, it beggars belief. Uh, if, you know, let's just talk about WTO tariffs very quickly. I know you're busy. But if, if, on current levels of trade with the UK and the EU, the EU would, on uh, WTO tariffs and schedules would be paying $13 billion per annum. And we would only be paying $5 billion on WTO schedules. That's, that's half our $10 billion net contributions right now. So we're quids in. We'd have £5 billion to play with to put into the economy, along with the $39 billion. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, so, that's so why I was asking Alan if, if he really thought the EU was going to go through with this. And as he said, it's a calculus uh, about how much they want to punish us and how much they want to cost themselves. Well, there's, there's a, obviously the issue is, George, is the Irish economy, because I, th I think Mr. Leo Varadkar, I think he's very, very much overplayed his hand. And I think he, may, he could find himself being thrown under the bus, to be fair. I think he will be sacrificed. Uh, he's probably a sacrificial lamb in the in the in the you know cards, their deck of cards. He may well be the the sacrificial lamb, the one that they wanted to play. But they're probably going to have to pull that card, as far as I'm concerned, because the Irish economy is in desperate state without the EU funding. Um, they would obviously be an absolute mess. I mean, it's a fake economy, the Irish economy. Uh, you also, George, if you look at the southern European countries, they are in a desperate state. You've got a huge number of youth unemployment in the southern countries. And if we go to France, you, even in their general populace in France, you're talking 9.8-10% general unemployment yeah. in the general population. If, if you go to the youth in France, you're yeah. talking over 20%. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and almost 50% in Spain. You've got mass dispersal of young workers from yep. their own countries in the poorer parts of the EU who That's are now right. all working yep. in Germany or Britain or France. That's right. That's right. Essentially, you've got very well-educated young European people working as baristas in London. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it's, it, it beggars belief. And if anybody thinks, you know, the European Union is going to survive, like Professor Alan Scherz said earlier, beyond the next five to ten years, I think it's ridiculous because we are the second highest contributor net to the European Union. Now, when we go, do you think German uh, and French taxpayers are going to want, uh, going to want to ch uh, chip in another ten billion for, for the gap in the coffers that we, we will leave when we actually do leave? No, they're not. They'll be up in arms. Uh, I think Mrs. Merkel, well, she's obviously got issues. You know, out with politics. Yeah, you know, no, no wonder she's trembling uh, in public. We, we now learn that behind the scenes, the German economy is suddenly, dramatically, in very serious trouble. Well, George, I'll just I'll take two words to you on that. Deutsche Bank, you know the issues that they've got there. It's a Gigantic derivatives. It's, and yeah, they've got uh, enough derivative problems that could blow the whole bank sky high. 
Absolutely, derivatives. Uh, you know that they are a hidden agenda. Yeah. Everybody knows that. Yeah. You know, pe people in the general population maybe not too aware of that. The United States have the same problem. They've got 22 trillion national debt. But if if you add derivatives, uncosted derivatives to that, you could double it or triple it. And as you said, the military and industrial complex is hoovering up U.S. taxpayers' dollars, and then they can't account for it. I mean, this is just globalism at its worst. And I think. As you said, to hell with it. The sooner I'll we tell get you what, out, I'll tell you what, the Tony. The, the more you speak, the more remarkable it seems to me is yeah. that virtually the whole of the trade union movement, with the exception of the uh, fire brigade union, I thought until they sacked uh, Paul Embury, uh, one of their best leaders, for speaking at a leave rally, and the RMT, the railway workers union, still under the influence of the late and great Bob Crow, who was a great Brexit campaigner, of course. But all the rest have gone over hook, line and sinker to this fading, failing, ultra-austerity capitalist club that they call the European Union. I, I simply don't understand it. Well, I'm amazed, George, to see that, you know, Jeremy's obviously taken Labour just one short step away from a Remain party. I mean, it staggers me, because Jeremy Corbyn must know that if he remains within the customs union and the single market, he cannot then re uh, nationalise some utilities. You can't no, no, do it. You simply no. can't do you're it. You're not allowed to do it, no. Exactly, you're not allowed to do it. And then essentially we're talking about um, what's going to be good for the country in the future going forward. I want to see investment, obviously, like we all do, into our doctors and nurses. I mean, is it right? Can anybody say it's right that we are stealing the brightest uh, people, you know, in professions such as the um, medicine, uh, yeah. pharmaceuticals, etc.? We're stealing them from the Philippines, from India, from Africa. Mm. We're bringing them here because it's cheap. We don't have to pay to train them. And then they are left beggared because then they've got to replace the ones that are coming here, and not just to the UK, but exactly. to Europe. Yeah. We should be and training so, our own. So, and, and some people tell you free movement of labour is a socialist idea. A socialist um, idea to leave in ruins the public services of countries vastly poorer than us so that they can come here and do jobs that our own daughters and sons should exactly. be being trained to do. It, it, it's, it's what I find so sad, George, is that you've got very well-educated people coming into this country, and they clearly aren't going to get the jobs, because the first thing they're told is, no, sorry, we can't accept that degree. You need a, you know, that's not acceptable. But we could give you a job as a barista. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous. All yes. shelf stacking. I mean, it's ridiculous. Absolutely. What a, Unfortunately, I think it's just globalism has just gone absolutely yeah, out yeah, of, of course it has. Tony, and look, we, uh, I've, really, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Don't be a stranger. Uh, stay I in touch. Uh, because I want... I, I, Tamar, can you send Bess in? Elizabeth? Ah! Elizabeth, people are very anxious to see you and hear yeah, from you. Uh, you are uh, an important segment of the uh, show. Uh, Bess looks at the uh, tremendous feedback on the Facebook and the YouTube uh, uh, programs that are going out now simultaneously with the radio broadcast. How's it been tonight? Has it been busy? 
Very busy, and you've added more work with the new Twitter account, GQ Ah, uh, yes, yes. So now I've got another channel I've got to keep on top of. And amazing responses to both our guests, so that's always great to see. Especially to Abby, incredible yeah. responses, yeah. Abby was a tour de force, I must yeah, say. Yeah, somebody said, yeah, Edward... Why, why isn't she in the Congress? Yeah, exactly. She would be a magnificent member Well, they're of calling the for Secretary Congress. of State. They want yeah, her for Secretary exactly. of State. Exactly, imagine yeah. Abby on Martin YouTube. as the United face of the United States the heart of the United States. It would transform the landscape. She's totally brilliant. Yeah, and there's some lovely comments from some people. And um, Fly Garrick in particular says, we need to support investigative journalism. Your life may depend well, on it. Well, you know, if you don't, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've made two films, both of which uh, got a great response uh, on uh, social media. Um, still making the second of them, the, the strange death of David Kelly. Uh, and the United States is a very big place, but the world is a bigger place. The whole world should be supporting people like Abby Martin in the United States because she's at the heart of the empire. And if she's making films that make the empire weaker and therefore the people of the world under the jackboot of the empire stronger, I mean, what's not to love? Yeah, and people have been very impressed that it's all been from grassroots, it's all been funded by people, so it's really nice to see. Um, X-Ray Vision says, and I really enjoyed this, so let's get this, this right, a US citizen can boycott goods and services from any country, including the US, but not Israel. Exactly. What is going on? <laughs> they can boycott anything British. It's yeah. totally legal to boycott everything British, but it's not illegal. It's not legal. To refuse to buy an Israeli orange. You couldn't make it yeah, up. Yeah, a lot of people in the UK seem absolutely baffled by yeah. this. I've never um, known anything like it. Yeah, Glyph says, Abby Martin says the US House personally opposes the BDS movement, but at the same time reaffirms the freedom of speech for individuals to practice. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Makes, makes very little it makes sense. Makes no sense. And Myra Mo says, passionate for human rights and Palestinian rights, Abby Martin is a gem. She is. So jewel, I think every, jewel, yeah. jewel in the in the crown. So are you you're following the GG Moats, the new yeah, Twitter you've got handle. 150 followers in two hours. Oh well, that's which good. Which is more followers uh, well, than I have in total, I think. So. Well, we need ten times that. <laughs> Follow it now, GG Moats yes, on Twitter. What about that YouTube and Facebook? Are they busy too? Been going absolutely mad. A lot of responses to Professor Alan Sked. That's really sparked a lot of disagreements in there. Yeah, Some yeah. people agree. Um, Corbyn is pro-Brexit, but as a leader of the Labour Party, he has to accept collective responsibility and voice the decision that won the vote at conference. That's from Duruti. Well, um, uh, you know, I just take issue with that. Labour stood in the election that he led in 2017 on a manifesto promised to respect the result of the referendum. And you're not respecting the result of the referendum if you insist on people voting again and you say you're going to campaign for the opposite of the decision that was made. That's not respecting the referendum. That's disrespecting it. I'm afraid not everyone agrees with no, you. No, I know that. Well, nice that's what the YouTube. nature of the, uh, yeah. the, the show is. We want, this yeah, is a university, or as somebody put it brilliantly, a multiversity. A multiversity. I wonderful? love that. What a yeah. great line. What a great line. Yeah, Neon Knight says, Brexit's dead already and the EU is fully prepared. What miracle does this Professor Alan Sked think the clowns are going to accomplish? Well, um, here's some more from uh, YouTube. Duncan McKeon. I, I give credit to Corbyn for trying to plough the middle furrow over Brexit in order to keep the nation together. Unfortunately, everyone has already joined one camp or the other. That's a fact. That, that is a very fair point. Stephen Armstrong says, Boris is the best the UK has to offer to get this mess sorted. 
The unions crippled Britain's industry. It's why we joined the EU in the first place. Oh, dear. <laughs> we joined the EU in 1973 uh, when there were no union problems uh, at all. New Scotland TV says Britain made cars. They made bad ones that no one bought or wanted when better ones came about. And uh, a lot like that. Uh, the f so people are watching on RTUK News Facebook. Facebook. And on, and on your my, YouTube channel, uh, YouTube channel yeah. which is George Galloway Official. And I'm now tweeting into DD Motes, which is great. Yeah. I love this tweet from Mary. I think you might have seen it. She's persuaded six of her neighbours to record all the television they wanted to and to tune in at 7pm. So that's nice. And that's been getting a couple of retweets. I think that was Marie in Glasgow. Yeah, she it got, was Marie. She got yeah. six neighbours to tune in. Isn't that this. lovely? Yeah. And, and then... to pass, pass over Poldark. Yeah. Which I know that many ladies like to watch. Yeah, I've made a big sacrifice being here this evening. <laughs> well, you could uh, videotape it, as exactly, we used to say, exactly. some decades I've got uh, to make my ago. priorities right. Any last messages? And a last message. You've got your first ever Ask Adam on your new account. And he's saying, how can we be a democracy when we live in a monarchy? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, you can be, as long as yeah. the monarchy is a purely constitutional adornment. Uh, I mean, I believe in republics rather than monarchies, but if you're going to uh, have a head of state, it's probably better that it's someone not politically contentious. Imagine if we'd had President Margaret Thatcher or President <laughs> Tony Blair. At least the Queen doesn't, you know, throw her handbag around yeah. in the uh, political uh, arena. And uh, she's know. quite a nice sort, uh, I must say. Have you met the Queen? I have, a couple of times. I oh, served wow. her twice. And I told her on the second occasion, I said, this is the second time I've served you. The first time was when I was a wine waiter in the <laughs> Angus Hotel in Dundee. And I said, you posed me one of my most difficult questions. She said, what was that? I said, I asked you red or white, your majesty. And you answered, yes. <laughs> and I literally had no idea what to do. What did, uh, so what did yeah, you do? I, 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 she, she asked me, what did you do? I said, I poured white. She said, you made the right decision. Oh, there we go. Uh, so that was at Buckingham Palace, and but the first time was in the Angus Hotel in Dundee, which is so long ago it's now knocked down, and nobody in Dundee even knows what I'm talking about. Well, look, Elizabeth, it's wonderful uh, to see you again. I'm sorry we've given you still more work to do with this new Twitter handle, uh, GG Motes. I hope it does well, though, and you've got uh, still more members me to job. report to me later. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Elizabeth for joining us. That's the second hour almost by. The good news is the third one beckons. It'll be Ask Adam after the news and the break. Now, I wanted to uh, ask you about the two interviews that I did earlier yes. this evening. Uh, one of them has been astoundingly popular and I predict will live forever uh, in the uh, internet, it will spread everywhere in the world. But the first one was important too. Uh, not least because we were up close and personal with somebody who actually made history. Uh, now, there are a lot of unpleasant things about UKIP, uh, but Dr. Alan Sked is not unpleasant. Exactly. And indeed had been overthrown uh, by others long, long uh, ago. But he did start the party. He seemed amazingly confident that Brexit will now happen. And the more I've thought about it this evening and talked about it this evening, 
The more I'm convinced that if the EU does not back down, we should go WTO. Where do you stand on that? I've always thought the WTO would be the best way to go because the only relationship that Britain ought to have with the EU and its member states in an era where the EU might dissolve, as the professor was suggesting, would be a simple free trading agreement the way that the Japanese and the Mexicans and the Canadians and the Koreans and the Singaporeans and others have with the European Union. Now, in order to accomplish that, it could be just as easily done through negotiations prior to the third. 31st of October, or it could be done afterwards. In some ways, there's even more of an impetus for it to be done afterwards, because if the makers of BMW and Mercedes and Siemens and other big German companies see that it's difficult to get their goods into one of the biggest economies in this part of the world, they're going to write to Mrs. Merkel. They're going to write to van der Leyen and all these other nameless, hapless figures and say, we want to sell Mercedes-Benz to Chelsea and we want to send sell Range Rovers to Scotland we wanted the, the whole thing and so I'm, I'm not worried about a WTO Brexit in the least the only thing I'm worried about is if someone tries to stop it even though the legal advice that was given by Jeffrey Cox people will remember he, got, him. he kept his job you were very keen that he should keep his job. I love the man's voice He's pure Shakespeare yeah I mean they've got to get him in Covent Garden if he ever leaves Westminster <laughs> but the well, it costs a lot per <laughs> I promise you. He's a QC uh, at the very highest level so of the wages. singing QC, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. but, but his legal advice backs up what Jacob Rees-Mogg said, and this is very crucial for two reasons. So the legal advice is that unless a deal is reached and approved by the Parliament before the 31st of October, or if there's a movement in Parliament to repeal the invocation of Article 50, then the default legal position is for Britain to leave on WTO terms on the evening of the 31st of October, trick or treaty, as Nigel Farage says. This, though, is the second bit, which is even more interesting. It's th the legal status of this hasn't changed since Theresa May danced her way into oblivion last week. This therefore shows the duplicity and the dishonesty and the anti-democratic tendencies of the May regime, sorry, government, because the law hadn't changed, but May and her front benches took Parliament's expression that it doesn't want a no-deal Brexit to give them, uh, to force a mandate upon them where they had to go to Brussels and beg them for an extension of the initial deadline at the end of March of this year. Now we know from what the leader of the House of Commons has said and from what the Attorney General has said that May did that all by herself. She took those indicative votes to mean something that was a mandate when in actual fact she had no mandate to ask for an extension at all. No, indeed there was a court case. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And anyway, it's running out of time. Indeed. Because 31st October is uh, not long uh, up to be upon us. Um, the, the sense, the economic sense of reaching an agreement with the European Union is still preferable though, isn't it? We, I mean, nobody wants to have acrimony with their neighbours, their closest neighbours. And so if we can reach uh, an agreement, it's better that we do. But the barrier to reaching an agreement is there, not here. I mean, Britain has no wish, 
has never had any wish to have bad relations with the EU that we are leaving. It's the insistence of particularly the Commission uh, that we must uh, climb through hoops and uh, bend over backwards uh, and, uh, and uh, the so-called backstop, which it turns out we were the people who invented. They didn't even come up with that. Theresa May has a lot to answer for, doesn't she? She certainly does. Not only did she go and ask for an extension when she wasn't legally obliged to do so, she could have let the clock tick over, as Jacob Rees-Mogg insists that Boris Johnson will do. But there's the backstop issue. It was then revealed by Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator on that side, that she never even mentioned the three-letter acronym FTA, which is that very kind of positive and productive and limited in its political scope, but very open in its economic scope for positivity kind of relationship that you just said that Britain ought to have with the European Union. And frankly, as Farage, who knows Barnier much better than Theresa May did, because he's known him for years and years, he said, Barnier is many things, but he's not dishonest. He wouldn't have made that story up to embarrass May or to embarrass uh, those around her. It was simply a statement of fact. And I do believe it, because she was someone who, with every fibre of her being wanted to retard the progress of Brexit because she didn't believe in it and because of that she should have been honest from the beginning and said I'm not fit to lead a, a government whose one job you had one job <laughs> is to Brexit yeah. and hopefully fingers crossed we've got a government now that and, will. And, and indeed as Alan Sked uh, implied and I more than imply, I explicitly make the point that we can reach a free trade agreement Absolutely. with the EU anytime. Yep. We could reach it a week after, two weeks after, the th two years after we leave on the 31st. And trust me, once we've left, the pressure from European Union manufacturers, agriculturalists, people that sell us things in great profusion will be much more keenly felt by their national governments. Certainly, if I ran Mercedes-Benz, I'd be saying to Mrs. Merkel, are you insane? You are going to cost us at a time when the German economy is hanging by its fingernails from the clifftop of recession. You're going to cost us billions of euros in exports to a big market from a rich economy called Great Britain. Well, it's the fifth largest economy in the world. If you don't think that BMW and Mercedes and the others don't want to get their products into that market with the least amount of terrors possible, you'd be living on the moon. Everything you say is correct, not least because Merkel and the others have dragged their feet about expanding trade with China, which is more or less said to the EU, fancy replacing the US as something of a major trading partner, and the EU have just sort of done all Charlie Brown-style hands in their pockets and kicking up the dirt. They don't want to, if, if, if they're already disappointed enough with not gaining new markets in the Far East because of the intransigence and the obstinance of people like Merkel and Juncker and the others, they sure as hell don't want to lose a market that's already a major market for their goods. So everything you say is totally correct. It sure is. Uh, I was going to take some written messages, but we've got a guy on the line. Let's take him first, shall we? Guy, welcome to the show. What would you like to ask Adam? Yeah, George. I'd just like to Adam. I'd like to ask Adam about the the border in the island of Ireland. 
uh, if when we when we Brexit, tariffs will be applied to products from the EU uh, into Great Britain and into Northern Ireland. If into, if, the, if the EU puts tariffs on us, yes. Okay. Well, Br in that Br case, Br Britain I, yeah. Britain will. This is important. Britain will yes. not initiate tariffs on okay. European Union imports, yeah. except if Europe imposes tariffs on British exports. But I take your George, point. I, George, I hear that, but let me ask you this one then. Adam, let me ask Adam. We, we form a trade relationship with USA. We decide that uh, the tariffs between the Harley-Davidson motorbike are going to be reduced. EU doesn't have that relationship. What's going to stop someone from the Republic going into Northern Ireland and buying that motorbike? It's going to be a, it's going to be a smuggler's paradise guy. <laughs> and what's wrong well, with that? But, Let's hear from Adam. Well, uh, well, the phenomenon that Guy has just uh, adumbrated to steal one of your words is something called re-exporting. And it's one of those things that can't really be totally stopped in any country or in any situation, uh, but it can be curtailed. Uh, this is one of the reasons that um, you have countries of origin labeling on various products uh, and the people who bring these things across international borders, the people that sell them, the taxman who has to collect the revenue from the sales of these goods is theoretically responsible for this. But you see this kind of thing going on in places that are far more distant than the two halves of the island of Ireland. Uh, due to the Chinese-US trade war, you saw the Vietnamese, not the government, but some clever chappies who want to bend the law a bit in Vietnam, scratching out the Made in China label on various goods and printing on Made in Vietnam, which doesn't, at the moment anyway, have a trade war with the United States. When when you had the Russia-EU trade war in full swing, you saw Belarus, which doesn't have a trade war with the EU, scratching out various made in Russia and made in the EU uh, labels and putting on the inverse and appropriate label. So these things do happen and they can't really be totally stopped. They can only be curtailed. And as the great economist Francis Sinatra said, that's life. Yeah. And you know, Guy, as we've already established tonight, there'll be no hard border. Because we ain't going to build one, Ireland ain't going to build one, and Michel Barnier ain't going to build one. So the Harley-Davidson will just whiz across the border. We shouldn't be there in the first place. Guy. Can I come back to Adam? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, okay, I, I understand that there's smuggling at this moment. This smuggling will increase because we're going to get different tariffs in the Republic. Not necessarily. Ireland. Is he... Well, well, that's a, George, that's the point why we're leaving the EU, because we can get cheaper products from outside of the EU. Mm -hmm. whether, it's, whether it's New Zealand lamb or a, a motorcycle made in America or, or whatever from where, whatever. Well, that's why we're leaving it. Are we, well, is I your man there uh, saying he's going to condone Well, that? You'll, have to, you'll have to deal with me agitating for us making our own motorcycles. Because I'll tell you what, Guy, in 1973, we made the best motorcycles in the world. We made cars. We made uh, railway engines. We had a steel industry, a coal industry, a shipbuilding industry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had, we had a, an aeronautics industry. We had all kinds of industry. And now we don't. So much for the EU. George, George, my city has hemorrhaged the factories to the Far East. 
Is that because of the EU? It's because of neoliberal economics and a failure of EU rules to allow state intervention in the economy. The making sure. illegal of state intervention in the economy. That's why we don't sure. have many of these industries now. George, how, why would the EU condone factories moving from England to other parts of the world, not in the EU? Well, first of all, a, a large number of them have moved to other parts of the EU. And Germany doesn't give a toss if factories and manufacturing close and cease in Britain because well, well, German industry, German manufacturing is the king of the European Union's manufacturing capacity. So as the EU is run for the benefit of Germany and France principally and has been designed to be so from the beginning, why should they care? George Dyson closed his factory in Malmesbury mm -hmm. and moved it to Malaysia. Yeah. Trust me, the EU Singapore. were not part of that. Singapore, not Malaysia. But, Singapore. Sorry, sorry, Singapore, correct. Yeah. He's just bought a $57 million pad in Malaysia. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah sorry, yeah. Singapore, Singapore. Yeah, yeah. But my point is, is that man going to come back to the UK and build that factory here? Well, I don't know if he is. Probably not. He, loves, he, money. he loves money more than his country. But yeah. we yeah. need a planned economy, a planned mixed economy, where the state has a decisive say in consultation with trade unions, with business, with civil society, in how our economy develops. Now, I made the point earlier on, you will have heard it. If Honda don't want to build cars in Swindon, if uh, Nissan don't want to build them in Sunderland, we'll build them. It's sure. our people that are building them. The plant George. and machinery was largely paid for by us. George, the champions of Brexit, Johnson and Mugg, the last thing they want is the state to control the infrastructure in the country. But, They're going to give everything away, including you're talking our to me. NHS. You're talking to me. You're not talking to Boris Johnson. I'm not well, Boris Johnson. And I'll be fighting for the kind of Britain I have just described. And it's my job to persuade the people of Britain to want that also. Why are you so fatalistic about your own people's political common sense? Why do you imagine the Tories are going to rule Britain in perpetuity? I thought you were a Corbynite, aren't you? And Corbynite said the EU was 7.5. Yeah, you're a Corbynite. But, but, you're a Corbynite. But, so you presumably, you presumably believe that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be the Prime Minister, not Boris Johnson. George, my question was about how we're going to control the non-border in the island of Ireland. Yeah, but that's what you started said, out talking about, but that's yeah, not what you really wanted to talk about. No, you, no, you, no, you no just, George, This George, is a red no, herring. George. The, 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 no, the, border, the border in the north of Ireland is a red herring. There will George. be no border. We won't George. build it. Ireland won't build it. Barnier won't build it. There will be no border in the, in the Irish uh, island of Ireland. I've had enough. Let me go to the next caller. Who is it, Tama? Anthony in Cork in Ireland. Anthony, welcome. 
hello, George. Hello, sir. Look forward, if you will, to the reunification of your small country torn asunder by British Empire a hundred years ago. Rejoice! Rejoice! Ireland's never been closer to reunification. Yes, a very good rhetoric, George. True or false? Uh, I, lo I love your politics. Um, I love um, Abby Martin, I want to just say that... Um, half the world loves Abby, Abby Martin, and the other half are... Um, I the saw you once in Galway. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I saw you once in Galway, and um, I love your politics. Um, I'm a socialist at heart myself, but I think you may be misjudging the EU. Oh, yeah? Um, Tell me why. I think... That, well... You are correct in saying that they will want to punish the UK as a warning to other countries, but they'll also want to show solidarity with Ireland. Uh, and yeah. I don't think, when you say they that, they'll of, throw they think, under the they bus. Think I don't of think that will happen. They, Michel Barnier thinks of little else uh, than little Ireland <laughs> and the poor working class mm. people of Ireland. Don't make me laugh. Yeah. Don't make me laugh. Well. And solidarity also, uh, with border, Ireland. Which issue? Ireland? Solidarity with the people that Vardica represents or solidarity mm. with the working class people in Ireland? Yeah. Well, I'm just saying from an Irish perspective that um, uh, support for the EU has gone up since Brexit. Well, and, I have um, no doubt uh, Ireland I, is a net beneficiary of the EU to yeah. a rather considerable extent. If, if, if yeah, people were pouring money into my not, pocket, I'd like them too. Sure, sure. But the border issue is not just one of trade, it's also one of, you know, nationalist politics. Well, well I'm so I'll tell you what, you want to talk about nationalist politics? Why isn't every <clears throat> nationalist in Ireland demanding mm -hmm. reunification now? No border, mm. oh, reunification, some, why aren't some are, they? Some are, but that's, you know, that's only a small minority of people on the island of Ireland. Well, I, I don't understand why. I've never known well, a small island. I've never known just, a small island torn asunder yeah. by imperialism that mm -hmm. doesn't want reunification. No, I understand, George, but that is just the reality of how things are. Let's hear from Adam. Adam. Well, I think that the issue has been made into a political football, but it is such a deflated football that you can't really play a match with it. The whole thing, as you say, from the very beginning is a red herring because Donald Trump doesn't want to build a wall between the north and the south of Ireland. And, in, and if the things that are transpiring in the political ether change public opinion in Ireland towards the European Union, that doesn't make a bit of difference to the Brexit process. It doesn't make a difference to the fact that goods are going to continue to flow between North and South just as they have. And it doesn't change the fact that people will be able to live in each other's islands or parts of an island in the case of Ireland. And they'll be able to drive across, walk across, cycle across or even take one of those flying jetpacks that we saw at Bastille Day last week or two weeks ago <laughs> across. The entire thing is an irrelevance. It's, it's, it's project, it's the apotheosis of project fear. Um, it's 
it's frankly disgraceful because for decades there were the troubles. Uh, they formally began in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, but it had always been a place of trouble. And now that there is peace by the grace of God, whether a Catholic God or a Protestant God. There's and only these, one God, Adam. <laughs> indeed. Um, but these politicians whose God is frankly project fear, this idolatry of project fear, they want to turn this peace process into a bargaining chip. Imagine them doing that in any other peace process in any other part of the world. The people at the UN would be giving speeches. How dare you turn what should be a straightforward economic agreement into a dispute in which one of the chips on the table is peace itself. Shameful and shame on those using this as a bargaining chip. Last word to you, caller. Yes, well, the peace, the peace in Ireland was always quite fragile. And we support, of course, Britain's self-determination. If you want to leave our club, then, you know, God speed with you. But uh, you have to realise that maybe we have different, um, uh, different trajectory then. And okay. you may want things to turn out a certain way, but they mightn't turn out the way you want them to. Well, uh, I have never accepted Britain's right to determine the course of events in Ireland. And I'm not going to start now. Neither do I concede to Mr. Leo Vardakar the right to determine what happens here on the island of Britain. But thanks for your call. Been a pleasure disagreeing with you. Let's take a quick break. Hello? Hello? Yes, Hi. Madam Hi. Christine. Christine, that's right, that's me, yes. How George. wonderful evening, to hear George. from you. Um, good evening. Good evening. Good evening to Adam as well. Thank you. Good evening. Um, yeah, my, my call really is... Um, is regarding your earlier guest and, and your sort of, um, let's say, premonition, but your prediction that um, Boris Johnson will call an election yeah. probably yeah. in the next month or two. Yeah. And um, I, I do kind of agree with you on that, and that is my fear um, that, you know, he will use Brexit to get those, you know, the Brexit party vote, mm. um, which ultimately will mean we have a Tory government then for another five years. Mm-hmm. And my concern is what that really means for, um, you know, our, our services, uh, what's going on currently in the, in, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, I voted Remain. Um, I'm not averse to come out, coming out of Europe at all. It's just under the con what the conditions we come out under, um, really. And I don't trust this Tory government or any Tory government really to to invest in in the services that you know that need invest in, particularly health service, education, these things. Mm -hmm. um, I work within the health service and I see what is happening with it's the privatisation already that's going on. And All the privatisation that there has been took place while we were in the European Union. Yes, yes, and that's why I'm not saying, I, I say I'm not averse to coming out mm -hmm. of, of Europe, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm saying, OK, we, so we get Brexit, Tories use that to win their next election and then we've got another five years of mm. Tories. What does that mean for well, uh, the uh, public services and the NHS? Because yeah. they're not going to stop what is currently happening. Um, to, you know, considering the... Even, even the, the services that are still under the NHS, uh, obviously, you know, it's still free at the point of need and I think that's why the public don't realise it. But we're being managed like a private company. Indeed. Basically. Um, and it's this internal market that's been created way back with Thatcher and continued with Blair and everyone ever since. And that is my issue, really, is, yeah. um, well, you know, well, I'm not uh, averse yeah, to being yeah. coming out Although of I must, I must point out this uh, logical uh, statement of fact, that if we stayed in the European Union, all this privatisation would have continued 
anyway. Wouldn't anyway, it? yes. And again, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. George but my, B, my, my point is, you're worried that if we Brexit, the Tories will get re-elected and privatisation yeah, will it's continue. Not, yeah, it's not but, in or out of Europe. And no. My problem is, it's the Tories. Your Tory, problem is the Tories. Yeah, the Tory that's my government. that's my problem too. Um, and that's that's my that, that, and that's my concern. No, I, 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 I agree. I, I, yeah. Before I hand over to Adam, I just make the point. Nobody can say I didn't tell Labour so. This is the gigantic error that I spoke about from last September. By positioning Labour as one of three remain parties, Labour has left the field to millions of formerly Labour voting Brexit supporters to other people to pluck, like ripe oranges off a tree. It was, will be seen as, a gigantic political strategic error. That's where I stand. Uh, Adam, how would you uh, respond to Christine? Well, I would respond by saying that, well, Christine, you sound like someone who obviously voted Remain but accepts democracy and is fairly ambivalent about what happens with Brexit. You yes, care much yes. more about... But, you, yeah, my concern is, and I think things have, uh, you know, the destruction of, of, of life for a lot of people has happened under, under the, while we've been in the EU. So, yeah, yeah. for me, that's not the key issue. It's, and, it's, and, it's, and by it's the way, Christine, not just government. in the public sector, mm. uh, yeah. 250,000 jobs in manufacturing have been lost in the West Midlands alone in the last 20 years, most yeah. of which, by the way, uh, the Labour government was yeah. in power. Yeah. Quarter of a million manufacturing jobs, plus the savage attacks on public services like the one that you work in. And God bless you all. Adam, sorry, continue. So I'll just wrap that pod up quickly. The only answer I have to your question is you should try to write Jeremy Corbyn or try to write people who are surrounding Jeremy Corbyn and say you should back Brexit because if there is to be a general election before the 31st of October, the parties that support Brexit are going to come out on top. Right now that seems to be the Boris Johnson that Conservative Party. Corbyn does not have a chance prior to the 31st of October if there's an election and he continues with this gun into the foot and then reload to shoot the other foot Brexit policy that he's currently uh, engaged in promulgating and it's all the more pathetic that for whatever anyone thinks about Jeremy Corbyn he is a man of principle how strange and how surreal then that he might be brought down by betraying one of his lifelong political principles his opposition to the European Union last word to you Christine? Uh, yeah, well, as I say, I mean, I did in the local um, EU elections, I did write to my MEP and, and say that um, about, you know, I was going to back her as a, as a Labour candidate, although she lost, but I did explicitly say that I do, you know, believe that we should Brexit. Now, because, I mean, what is that saying to the millions of people? And I come from a council estate in Greater Manchester where I know a lot of people that voted Brexit. And when we paintbrush them as all racist and horrible people, mm, it, just makes, it just entrenches them more in their views. Absolutely. Yep. Where, where, where are you living? Which city? Uh, I live uh, in Kings Lynn, uh, Norfolk now. Okay. But, um, yeah. Not Thank you. Area, Christine, really. uh, it's been marvellous uh, talking to you. Don't be a stranger. Thanks very much for calling. Marie McFarlane asks, Adam, do you play a musical instrument? Hmm. 
I certainly played in the past tense a musical instrument. I suppose I still do. I just don't have access to it. I was a percussionist back in, in, in the glory days. You know a lot about music. I love music. You've been involved in, in producing music, in no. playing music. No. You are, a, you are a maestro. Don't hide your uh, light under a, a bushel. Oh, I'll put it that way. If the, if the world economy was perfect and if every war were to stop indefinitely, I'd probably spend the rest of my life playing music, listening to music, promoting music, and talking about music a lot. Uh, James Ball asks, after Mueller's terrible and frankly embarrassing Senate showing this week, <laughs> oh, yes. is Clinton's Russiagate conspiracy finally dead in the water? I must say, I watched the Mueller congressional hearing, and if that doesn't kill Russiagate, there's something very <laughs> badly wrong, because it was nakedly obvious First of all, that Mueller doesn't even know what's in his own report and therefore cannot possibly be the author of it. Yes. And secondly, how absolutely, absurdly threadbare this whole Russiagate hoax now looks. Well, it's only a flesh wound to bring us back to the Monty Python reference, but uh, <laughs> what, what I saw in that Mueller hearing that I watched too in between uh, watching May meet with the Queen and Johnson meeting the Queen, um, which was actually quite a bit more exciting, uh, but the, what the overall takeaway from this is that a, port, a report that long and that exhaustive could not have possibly be written by one man. Even if an aged Robert Mueller was Herodotus or Tolstoy, he couldn't have written he that all like by he himself. Was I mean, he's in his 70s, but he, he, his performance was like a man in his 90s. Mahathir Mohammed is 93 years old well, and running Malaysia. Would be far more uh, sprightly on his feet of than uh, Mullah. We were told, built up, I was built up to believe that this Mullah was some Elliot Ness figure. <laughs> I was expecting him in a soft hat and uh, with deadly accuracy and so on. He's a bumbling fool. I mean, it would be, imagine if we did one of these Q&As and for every question I was asked by you, the audience, I said, refer to my report, refer to yeah, my report. Yeah. Actually, I don't, I am actually on, on page your 35 of oh, the Oh, well, report. if it's in my report, it must be right. And, and then while he's holding the paper, you see one of the assistants tap him on the shoulder and say, Gov, it's backwards. <laughs> <laughs> it was really, it, I'm not, it was really almost that bad. Max Flynn asks, I'd love to know what Adam and you think Russia and China would be willing and prepared to do to help Iran in the event that Iran ends up in a war with the United States? Mm. Well, the China answer is that they would defend a position of non-interference and non-aggression at the level of the United Nations, but beyond that, not much would be done. China has a, an ironclad commitment to non-intervention. I say that's a good thing. With Russia, it's a bit more nuanced because Russia's already involved in a conflict in the region and one that involves Iran. That, of course, is the Syria conflict. Russia is probably already through quiet diplomatic channels, acting as a kind of go-between uh, between the two sides. And the country that's facilitating this could well be Israel, because a lot of people in Israel, contrary to what Netanyahu says, they don't want a war with Iran, because they know that it could spell very big physical disaster for Israel. Russia is in a unique position in that it can 
call Iran and someone of importance picks up the phone and they can also call Tel Aviv and someone of importance picks up the phone. Not many countries on this planet can claim that they're in such a position. And so because of that, it's in Russia's interest to essentially horse trade with both sides and make sure that even if both sides feel a bit let down from their ideological standpoint, that a conflict is averted. And I do think that ultimately that will be good for the world, even though I retain my position uh, that I made clear the other week. I don't actually think there will be a full-on shock and awe-style war on Iran. I just don't see it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Max Flynn. Uh, let's take a quick break. Adam, we've got a legend on the line. It's Fagash Flo, the legend that is Norma in Bristol. <coughs> no show is complete. Norma, welcome back. And I've got a cough, John. <laughs> Don't worry, you're sounding clear as a bell. Okay. Um, it's about music. There's an echo on here. Uh, you um, keep saying that, but the, the rest of the world's hearing you beautifully. Okay. It's about two of them, really. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit complicated, just two or three quick points. Um, on my Twitter account, there is a councillor, James Ball, yep. who had music in mind in North Wales. Now, he's crowdfunding for a new community music for people, for instruments, for people with mental health and loneliness. Now, why I'm allying this with, in Venezuela a few years ago, there was an orchestra, and I suspect Adam knows it, called the Simon Bolivar Youth Indeed. Orchestra. And it was founded, well, formed actually, from the most troubled children there. And they had a marvellous conductor, Gustavo Dudemar. And they played at the proms a couple of years ago. And it was extraordinary, exciting music. Um, the point I'm allying the two points is to tell Councillor James Ball that it could happen. And just quickly, I'd better say the second point because I know there's not much time. Just to show I've got variety in my musical taste. The specials played in Bristol last week. And I don't know if he knows, but they are a great band. Of course they, he knows. There's free nothing Nelson about Mandela. music he doesn't know. Free, <laughs> Nelson, free Nelson Mandela, what else is there to know? That was Jerry Dammers. He used to be in them, ghost, yeah. Ghost Town. Yeah. yeah. Uh, OK, Norma, just because of the hour, I'll ask Adam to respond. Yeah. Well, the Bolivar Youth Orchestra is one of the finest youth orchestras, if not the finest in the world, which, considering how far it is from the general geographical epicenters of orchestral greatness, it's saying quite a lot. Um, I do recall when it seemed that there would be a war on Venezuela, and I'm not one to carry water for that particular government, uh, but when I heard that there might be a war, I watched a clip of the youth orchestra playing in Caracas, and I thought, what savagery, what pure barbarism would it be to drop bombs onto the small homes where these children live and the concert hall where these children play mm -hmm. and to by the use of force prohibit the ability of a new Gustavo Dudamel to arise and become the yeah. next global superstar war is the enemy of many things but it's certainly the enemy of art and culture last word Norma okay well really I guess what that was a beautiful answer maybe Adam we should leave it at that Okay, okay. Thank you, as always. Thank you. It's uh, a, a real pleasure to hear from you. Uh, Lixna says, uh, uh, yeah, Priti Patel suggested stopping food exports to Ireland. 
despite Ireland being the most self-sufficient food country on the planet. <laughs> I think that's a bit of an own goal. Yes. Uh, Indian Blush 78 says, the Blairites are trying to remove Corbyn and they've ruined the Labour Party. I'm in no doubt at all about that. I'm engaged, as many of you will know, in a campaign to unseat one of them, the leader of them, Tom Watson, the so-called deputy leader of the Labour Party, who has spent the last four years trying to destroy the party of which he's the deputy leader. Uh, and on the 9th of August, I'll be nearby in Dudley Town Hall. It's free entry. Uh, that is the 9th of August, Dudley Town Hall. Please, wherever you are, put that in your diary and try to be there. I'll be there with friends, some of them very interesting friends indeed. There have been hellos from Slovenia, Turkey, Alberta and Canada, South Africa, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Brooklyn, Kings Lynn, Edinburgh, Cork, Leeds, Stoke-on-Trent, Liverpool, Bulgaria, Sweden and Syria. Isn't that? Everywhere but Milton Keynes. <laughs> Milton Keynes. Tamar's from Milton Keynes. Oh, so we've got that so covered. We're truly international. This is listening. We've got at least one listener Excellent. in Milton Keynes. Unless, unless she's just that happy to get him out of the house. Uh, <laughs> David from where? David from Hi, the northeast George. on the line. Go ahead, David. Hi, George. You all right? Yeah, great to hear from you. Thanks, man. I've been a fan for quite a while. Thanks. Um, some people probably know me by another name. Deep Thought. Okay, so my question, George, is this. I voted Remain because I was worried about the stories destroying human rights, workers' rights, and the environment. Mm. But I'm no fan of Europe, to be honest. I don't want to, you know, be in a Republican army or anything like that. Um, and my other concern is with U.S. Uh, food products, because they're mm. not very well looked after. And the EU has much better sort of stringent controls on the food. And, uh, you know, that concerns me. So that's kind of my question to you and to Adam. And uh, thanks for listening. No, welcome. Thanks very much for it, Adam. Well, a, a trading agreement can cover as much or as little as what people want. And what's, what's troubled me most by a lot of the general lexicon that's arisen since 2016 in Britain is it's an all or nothing, zero sum mentality. Either Britain's all the way in Europe or all the way as or a... Or guzzling chlorinated chicken. As the 51st state of the United States. I mean, look, there's something in between. And there was actually, there's a wonderful Twitter thread that must be on, you know, comment 1000 about the British British industry and it turned into the British automotive industry and people thought, oh, Britain can't make cars again. I, well, why not? Well, because British Leyland was rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an argument. I mean, there's such a thing as a bad company in a good country. China, America, the two biggest economies in the world, they've probably had more companies fail yes, in their two countries Adam, than have succeeded elsewhere. This is the country that made the Rolls Royce. Yes, that indeed. made the Bentley, that made the Jaguar, that made the Land Rover, that made the Range Rover. Yes. Are you saying we can't design good cars, that we can't make good cars? 
That's ridiculous. It's fatalistic rubbish. And as I, as I said earlier, I think it bears saying again, I want Brexit to be an Essenbod Kingdom Brunel-style Brexit, not an Islington Fiefdom Brunei Brexit. Ah, oh, how totally wonderful. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> you I will. probably will. <laughs> uh, thank you very much indeed uh, for that call. Zach Buffon says, superb show tonight. Abby Martin was wonderful. Really looking forward to her new movie. She really was uh, brilliant, uh, Adam. What's Absolutely. your take on the question I asked, Doc? How come all these liberals and progressives and Hollywood types, the Me Too uh, movement and so on, how come they don't care about women in Palestine? How, you know, I, I had uh, on my uh, Sputnik television show just a few weeks ago, I had Tamimi, a young yes. woman, striking, brilliant, brave, beautiful, a woman that had been thrown into a dungeon uh, by the Israeli occupation uh, of Palestine. How come none of... <laughs> get her the right way up, Dama. How come none, none of these people give a toss about her? Well, when we're talking about celebrities and the kind of causes they associate themselves with, there's something I invented that's called the Bono Roger Waters paradigm. If it's a safe cause that won't get someone into any trouble, that won't get someone to lose sponsorship, as Roger Waters has, that won't get someone into political hot water, that won't cause someone trouble when touring or playing or premiering a film abroad, it's a Bono cause. Just look up all of the things that Bono is associated with and you can rest assured that if you associate yourself with those causes, nothing negative will come your way. Then turn to Roger Waters, a much better musician, by the way, in my humble opinion, and look at the causes that he has associated himself with. Palestine, Crimea, Venezuela, Julian Assange, uh, op opposition to war in Syria, the most unfashionable yet deeply important causes of the time. And it just shows you that some people have guts and some people only want to look humane for a fashion statement. I respect those people less than the the ones who come out there and say, look, mate, I just want to sell weapons to the Saudis and to hell with the world. At least they're being honest. The Bono lot have a lot to answer for in the ethics. I, lab I think Adam has just enunciated uh, what will become a law. It will become a natural law and it will be known as Adam Gary's Bono Roger Waters paradigm. I think you have just perfectly defined uh, the dichotomy that exists in the world when it comes to liberal, progressive, celebrity uh, uh, endorsement of causes. Nicola says, how can we have a foreign minister who didn't know that most of our cross-channel imports came through Dover and who thinks the Red Sea separates the UK <laughs> from Ireland? It was a rather embarrassing gaffe. Well, maybe he needs a few tablets. That helped someone previously to learn where the Red Sea is. Uh, but to be perfectly fair, not knowing where Dover is isn't a problem of the Foreign Secretary. That would be a problem if he was the Home Secretary. That's a domestic issue. But it is, um, uh, it is a, bit, a bit odd that uh, yeah. he's geographically confused in yeah. that way. Skousalarsky says, would Trump really be foolish enough to attack Venezuela? 
I, I don't think so, even though, and I, as I've said before, while attacking Iran is something of a suicide mission, attacking Venezuela, at least in its initial stages, wouldn't be very hard. It's in a neighborhood that the United States effectively controls, where Iran is close to countries, and more importantly, elements within countries that would be very sympathetic to its cause. So from a logistical military point of view, Venezuela is easier to invade and to conduct a regime change in. That being said, Trump doesn't seem to care very much about Venezuela. He let Bolton do all the talking. It's never too late for something to happen, but it does seem as though a lot of people in Washington are resigned to the fact that that was a bird that never flew. Yeah, uh, although if the same thing happens on the Iran front, then somebody else will be in danger or one of the previous uh, uh, targets that were lined up will be back in the frame. Absolutely. It's like a, a wheel of misfortune. Yeah, a wheel of misfortune. Uh, David Wilson says, do you think it will come down to a choice of WTO stroke no deal or revoking and forcing MPs to choose? And why is John McDonnell now a Remainer? Wasn't he always in step with Corbyn over the EU? <laughs> well, you know a bit more about his um, personal uh, life's biography than I do, but suffice it to his say... Journey. Indeed, John McDonald's journey. His journey. I know only too well. <laughs> uh, you know, journey to the centre of Angela Merkel's consciousness, I suppose one could call it. Um, it, it. It's very unlikely that anyone in Parliament would be voting for the revocation of Article 50, not least... That the, the government would have to propose that in the first place, and obviously Boris Johnson isn't going to do that. Um, so the, the question that's going to be before the Commons, if the EU gives Boris a deal, it's going, be, going to be between that deal and if the Commons votes that down, all things as they stand now, that would lead to a WTO exit. As for the Labour Party, uh, they're all living in sort of bizarro land. They're, they're doing everything they can to alienate their core constituencies uh, uh, while placating, I would say, pandering to the Islington Mafia. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to say something I, I, I wouldn't normally say. Uh, I've kind of refrained mainly from saying it. Uh, that when John McDonald says he's a Remainer at heart, he's not telling the truth. Mm. And that is fatal to the Corbyn project, which, if it was anything, was a project that told the truth. Yep. Unvarnished, unspun, uh, maybe could have been more polished and so on, but authentic. Yes. But I have known John McDonnell for nearly 40 years. For most of that time, he was either a raving Trotskyite, Marxist-Leninist, or someone keeping that enough under wraps to be elected as a Labour MP, as a man who would stand on platforms shouting solidarity, uh, pushing people to get out on the streets and bring down the Tory government uh, by force, uh, supporting people, ransacking the Conservative Party headquarters, uh, talking Trotsky uh, in his private hours, uh, he has metamorphosed from all that into someone who asks us to believe he's a Remainer at heart. Well, perhaps I shouldn't say he's being untruthful. Perhaps I should put it a different way. He is either being untruthful or, like Saul, on the road to Damascus, he has experienced a conversion so sublime and extraordinary he has a duty to explain 
that conversion to the rest of us. He has to say, here's where I was on the road to Damascus. And here's the blinding light which came and illuminated a landscape I had spent the rest of my life missing. Here was the word which came down to me, which made me realize that everything I'd said about the European Union for the previous 40 years was wrong. And here is the moment that it happened. Otherwise, I'll have to conclude he's being untruthful. What's your view? Well, amen to the sermon. Absolutely right. I think that with Corbyn, as, as, as we were saying, and I think we're both sort of stumbling onto the, the same point, the Corbyn movement was all about doing what it said on the tin. It wasn't about hiding a Thatcherite agenda behind a Labour uh, label, and it wasn't about sort of trying to do, oh, well, we're a bit left, but we're a bit right, and we're a bit, yeah, but no. But no, this was about, if you like Corbyn or, or dislike a bit of a mormon figure, a bit like I admit Farage's, and like most interesting politicians in interesting times are. And yet this, this house of cards, built on a foundation of principle, is now being struck by the lightning of opportunism, only opportunism usually implies doing something advantageous. They're taking the opportunity to do something disadvantageous that also happens to be dishonest. I mean, whatever one wants to say about the current Labour Party, tacticians they are not. Nicola finally asks, ask Adam, Adam, you are so knowledgeable. Do you run Google from your garden shed? <laughs> Have you even a garden shed? I haven't even a garden, let alone uh, a shed. But no, I certainly, if there's one thing that I'm not associated with that I'm very pleased not to be associated with, that's the tech industry. I don't like it, and if it got to know me, it probably wouldn't like me either. McStink Dog says, fiery tonight, Mr. Galloway. Great show. Keep it up. Thank you. Russell Davies says, such a change to have genuine professional political debate. And X-Ray Vision says, first the brilliant Abby Martin, and now the man like Adam Gary answers questions and ask Adam on Sunday moats. Beats corporate media drivel any day. Amen to that. And... As I said to you, I'm at Dudley Town Hall on the 9th of August at 7pm. It's free entry. Just turn up. I'll have extraordinary friends with me also. You can follow Adam at Eurasia Future, Adam Gariel. It's all over the Twitter feed. You must read what Adam says. His stuff is really first class. You don't have to agree with it all. I don't. But you've got to respect a man of this intellect and this honesty. You can follow me, of course, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Patreon, and on YouTube, where you're possibly already watching this. It's been marvelous. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.